huh, this is a nice recording area we're, we're in today. The red drapes, uh, black and white floor. Awesome. Oh, hey, hey, y'all. Uh, how y'all doing with this COVID stuff out there, huh? The Spanish is and the noise I am is from 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 me no real okay so welcome everybody to another episode of watch if you dare a horror movie podcast where myself the coward and my co-host aaron the movie monster boy we pick a new horror movie to do we go through it we discuss the fears and phobias just how scary it is whether it's accessible for people who are trying to break into the genre like myself but before we get into that we actually have a guest on the show someone who has never been on the show before meryl welcome to the show Thank you for joining us. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. And Aaron, thanks again for being my co-host like usual and doing all the work of editing. All same, bud. <laughs> this uh, this whole quarantine thing actually works for all of us because uh, we always do this show remotely, <laughs> so it doesn't hinder us whatsoever. Yeah, exactly. I have been seeing a lot of shows out there that have kind of been facing a little bit of trouble trying to adjust to continue with uh, quarantine going. A lot of people were recording live with each other, so our hard go out to all of you hopefully you can make it work if you have any questions feel free to hit me up on twitter i'll give you what the best advice as i can give yeah again we've been doing this remotely the entire time so yeah you know no sweat if anybody's got questions but yeah there's there's gonna be like a weird layer in the strata when everybody goes back and starts listening to old shows again no matter what show they listen to because everybody's gonna have an episode where they're like oh yeah we're uh, we're all stuck in our closets right now (laughs) there's always gonna be that weird chunk in time that we look back and it's like frozen in amber around this whole stupid situation so Yeah. yeah yeah hopefully everybody's staying safe staying smart and you know, making the right decisions. So. Y'all uh, should know this by now, uh, having saw the title of this episode and our nifty uh, introduction that we are doing David Lynch yet again, the second time we- we've uh, crossed paths with uh, David Lynch, and I could yeah. not be more excited. We are entering the town of Twin Peaks uh, with Twin Peaks Fire Walk with me, but uh, like usual, before we get into the film and dig into it, we are going to be shooting the shit for a little bit and going to recommendations and all that, but Meryl, being as this is your first time on our show we usually ask our guests especially if they're new what got you into horror what is your relationship with horror as a genre whether it be movies tv whatever or do you even like horror go ahead just go off yeah good question i would call myself horror adjacent i like the idea of liking horror so anything that's spooky <laughs> or scary, I'm like, oh, totally. I'm totally into that. And then when I start watching it, I get way too scared. <laughs> so okay, you're just like me then. <laughs> I'm just like Derek, where like, I want to like horror because I'm very attracted to the aesthetic and to the spookiness of it. But I have a sweet spot that I need to find in books or movies or shows that play to like, the mystery and the aesthetic of it, but not so much the gore that I sometimes see 
too intensely jump scary or anything like that is not my jam. Yeah, that's interesting. Derek's very sensitive to jump scare stuff, but neither of us are very sensitive to gore. Um, yeah. so I think you're probably the first guest that has explicitly been like, yeah, gore just does not, you know, do it for me. It doesn't. And it really, it, it puts me off and it also takes me out of like the enjoyment sure. of yeah. whatever it is. There's a difference between like being horrified and being terrified and being like revulsed. Yeah, And exactly. that's like a hard line to walk properly without just falling like completely into the revulsion side. Yeah. And that being said, I really appreciate campy gore. I think that that's sure. a really fun that's addition. Yeah. And that's part of what I love about a lot of David Lynch stuff. It's It can be really campy. Even the stuff that's really terrifying it has still like a garish hue to it a lot of times. Sure. That makes it feel like it's not quite trying to make you feel like it's totally real, but like an example of something. Yeah, totally. For me, uh, I wanted to ask you this, actually. Is there a specific type of horror that you can digest easier? Like for me, the hardest uh, type of horror for me to digest is actually through movies, even more so than video games. And for me, it's a control thing because even in a video game, no matter how scary it is, I still have a degree of control over what I'm doing on screen. And with a book, it's just easy to close the book or it's all in my own imagination. Whereas with a movie, if I'm like sitting there watching a movie and I don't want to like stop it or interrupt it or if I'm watching with other people, there's kind of nothing I can do. I'm kind of just strapped in. And that's why I love horror, but movies themselves and TV shows are kind of like the last, I guess, vein that I've tapped into. And this podcast was really what started me getting back into it again. Is, is it something like that where you can do like books and stuff like that, but just not movies? Yeah, I think so. And especially going to the movies is an even more heightened thing about like sure. what you're talking yeah. about, where you're right. like, I actually paid for this and I'm sitting in a seat <laughs> next to and I'm strangers. probably with other people, yeah. And now I'm drunk and <laughs> I'm screaming <laughs> when something scary happens. I mean, this is probably a, a really common feeling, but the two movies I've seen recently in theaters that I felt completely trapped and like, I should not have come here were Midsummer yeah. and Mother. Okay. Okay. So both of those were like strapped me in and I, I like halfway through, I was like, I don't know if I can handle this, but I cannot leave. <laughs> Neither of those really super crossed my gore line, but they were both so intense. Yeah, there were some moments in both of those, but they are there both very quick yeah. and shocking yes. moments that are done and it doesn't really they linger were done. on them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not like torture porn gore. No, no. And yeah. that yeah. that's okay with me. I can go there. It was just like those both left me with such a feeling of like claustrophobia from mother and then from Midsummer, just like the feeling of tripping the whole movie. <laughs> like, well, both of those movies too, really Really, really, really focus on the like social anxiety aspect of like yeah. being around other people and interacting with other people and am I doing the right things? You know, even mother specifically is just the uncomfortableness of who are these other people? What are they doing here? Get out of my house. Like mm-hmm. that entire thing. That's that's the stuff in that movie that is effective to me. The larger like allegory that movie's playing with can like fuck off. Yeah, but it's the same. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, those movies both deal with a lot of that, and that's the stuff that still makes me uncomfortable. Like no level of gore is gonna bother me but watching something like Karin Kusama's Invitation is another example of that where it's just this people getting together for like a dinner party and things go badly and just having those weird instances of 
wait, so we all know each other. Who who are these people? Like, think of, uh-huh. like, our college friend group all got together, which Meryl, like, we all went to school together. That's how we know Meryl. Yeah. Um, yeah but if college. we, like, all got together and, like, we just also invited some really random people over that nobody knows, and they're being really <laughs> creepy, and they're being really awkward, right? That does sound kind of like college, if yeah, we're being honest. <laughs> yeah, a little bit, but <laughs> in context, I guess, yeah. That's not the that best example. That exact situation. <laughs> sure, yeah, okay. <laughs> kind of defines my times. Definitely. Yeah. In our house and your house, Aaron's uh, especially, like, when we were the party house, we'd wake up and there's people we have no idea who the fuck they are and they're sleeping on our couches. Or, yeah, just at yeah. 2 a.m., you walk outside, suddenly you're in a group of people you've never met before who are acting really creepy and you're like, yeah. I don't know if I'm in the right place anymore. <laughs> like, yeah, totally. But yeah, Midsummer and... Uh, uh, mother both like really deal with that and that's the kind of stuff that even for me still sets me like really uncomfortable so I'm I'm right there with you on that part even if the gore factor doesn't necessarily do much for me mm-hmm. personally yeah totally awesome with that we're gonna go into our recommendations or rather what we've been kind of consuming horror related outside of the movie we're covering today and we do this kind of educate each other on some stuff that we might want to check out and you our audience if any of the stuff that we have been consuming horror related sounds interesting uh, we hope we can offer it as a recommendation so especially right now <laughs> yeah especially in quarantine with that Meryl guest goes first is there anything horror related that you've been kind of digging into lately so I was thinking about this because because lately I haven't been watching a lot of horror. I feel like I'm very seasonal with it. I watch a lot of it around Halloween just because, sure. like I said, yeah. the aesthetic is part of like why I enjoy the genre so much. But when I was thinking about it, there was something that I saw that kind of stuck with me. And I don't know if y'all have seen this, but it's the movie Don't Look Now. Yeah, totally. Do you know about this? I don't know yes. about this and one. That is, that is on our list of stuff to do. So this is a um, from a short story by Daphne du Maurier, who wrote the book Rebecca, which is her most famous novel that's like a gothic horror novel which is also a great movie yeah Yeah. and so that got turned into a movie her short story the birds was alfred hitchcock's movie and don't look now is another short story that i read around halloween two years ago i heard it like on a spotify podcast or something and i was like "Ooh, that was spooky i didn't know it's a full-length feature film i gotta look up who the actors are it's julie christie and donald sutherland yes i I pulled it up while you've been talking about it looking like kind of looking stuff up about this it's pretty wild i loved the pacing of it the feel of it it also has the most long uncomfortable sex scene of any movie i've ever seen (laughs) with donald sutherland with donald sutherland and is an acquired taste sex Sexually, uh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was absolutely floored at this sex scene. But it's just like a very self-contained little fable. And I really liked it. And I thought that it was... I, I just hadn't heard of it until I read the story. So that would be something I think that would be fun to check out. It's also just very adult. Not just in like, okay, there's sex stuff in it and there's murder stuff in it. But like the themes that it's dealing with are very adult themes that you're not going to relate to until you are an adult. That's a movie that I definitely saw in high school because it was just one of those, yeah, of course, go watch this if you're a fan of film. And it didn't really click with me. And I saw it several years ago when the um, Criterion Blue came out again. I was like, all right, let me give this a rewatch. And dear Lord, that movie like punched me in the fucking gut. 
just the like whole idea of this relationship falling apart around the death of a child, which is a topic that we've covered on this show before, for sure, with some other movies. That movie is probably the best version of that and the atmosphere and just the weirdness. And it's a good one to bring up on this podcast, too, because there's very much a sense of surrealism with some of the horror that's going on in that movie, especially where yeah. it lands. It's very dreamlike. There's a very strange uh-huh. kind of visual quality to it. Nicholas Robe's fucking fantastic. I love him as a director. I will say, I think there's an aspect of it that reminds me a lot of David Lynch's pacing as well. Yes. It takes a long time on certain scenes that feel like they shouldn't be so long, yeah. which I think is very characteristic of a lot of the things that we're going to be talking about today. But yeah, there's not as much like absurdity. It's just more like the pacing kind of draws you in and, and feels very dreamlike as you're going yeah, through it. That's a good totally. way of saying it. Yeah, just kind of a little bit I'm looking over this. We're totally adding this to our list, Mansfield. It's, it's on the list already. Okay, cool. Yeah. Yeah, it's one that I added a long time ago, yeah. I am down to do this film. Um, I saw, too, that he directed uh, The Man Who Fell to Earth, which is the David Bowie sci-fi movie, Yep, which I haven't watched before, but... There's a couple of connections already, because Kiefer Sutherland that's in Twin Peaks Firewalk with me is the son of Donald Sutherland, yeah. and now, yeah, David Bowie. And then so David Bowie, and yeah. Connections everywhere. It's fate. Yep. But uh, is there anything else, Meryl, that you've dug into or wanted to touch on? I guess only in the theme of being horror adjacent, I'm going to start rereading the John Dies at the End series again, which okay, I yeah. love and I think is hilarious. That's on my bookshelf of stuff it I, is I have to so read. funny. I loved that movie years ago and a while back, it was when Heather and I just like randomly were passing through and bumped into you and Nathan when y'all were in town visiting your parents. He recommended me read those books while I'm commuting and I burned through that whole series. It's great. Oh, yeah. I remember that. That's right. Yeah. So I remember seeing the movie a while ago like years yeah. and years ago and I thought it was so funny I rewatched it and I was like this was pretty bad but I guess it's still <laughs> kind of funny but like it got me to read the first book and then the second book was amazing it was yeah. so much fun and the third one was was good as well I didn't even realize there was a third one yeah the, uh, the yep. spiders one is the last one I knew about yeah I, it, it was just so so funny and so ridiculous and outrageous but it has all like the elements of horror and, and keeps it it does it's not a total parody like there's a storyline to it as well but it's so much fun it's such a good it's ride. absurd yeah and Derek just for your information uh the movie was directed by Don Coscarelli who did Phantasm <laughs> oh really I didn't know that that's awesome yep well awesome good suggestions uh Mansfield what have you got for us because I know you have stuff for us uh well you'd be surprised we uh haven't been watching a lot of stuff lately honestly i've been doing a lot of yard work um i've still had to work throughout this when you say yard work do you mean real life yard work or um, animal crossing? Well, that's, that's what i was just about to say like i'll briefly mention it <laughs> yes uh heather and i are playing animal crossing she is the primary i'm just on her island helping out i know that game buddy <laughs> Yeah, it's been a good game to play during this break. Like, millions of other people are finding out, apparently. But my character, since there were no, like, bald or beard options when I created my character, I'm just a little spooky goth girl. And I'm making my house all spooky and gothy. So anything that's evil or creppy, I'm buying from the store and I'm painting it black and I'm putting it in my house. You just need to make a tarantula island. Uh, no spiders in my house. But I have a giant snapping turtle named Mavis and I have a bunch of big ugly fish and fish tanks and a bunch of, like, skull shit. And a tarot set, which is going to come in later in this episode. But nah, either way, like, I have not been watching a lot of, like, horror-related stuff per se. 
I've been kind of taking the time to catch up on some, you know, video game time and yard work and spending time with Heather and everything else. But that said, I did watch Joe Bigos's new movie, VFW, uh, which was pretty fun. I've been kind of mixed on Bigos, if I'm being honest. His first two features were not necessarily entirely my jam. Uh, I appreciate what he was going for, but they just don't quite work for me. This movie fucking worked entirely. So the whole movie is just full of these old man badass character actors from all kinds of shit. So it's like Stephen Lang from Avatar and Manhunter and Don't Breathe. William Sadler from Die Hard 2 and Trespass. Demon Knight, which we're definitely going to be covering later, Fred Williamson, Martin Cove, David Patrick Kelly, who plays Jerry on Twin Peaks. Lots of those guys. They are just all these old war vet dudes and it's them defending their local VFW club from these drugged up kind of mutant punker kids. So it's kind of this siege movie with insane gore and just lots of like that gift from Predator of Schwarzenegger and Carl Weathers doing that hand grip and just like flexing. It's just lots of like one-liners and shit like that but yeah insane gore great performances all around definitely like kind of hit that sweet spot for me only criticism i have is it's very dark visually so it's kind of hard to tell like what's going on sometimes some of that's budget some of that's like location restrictions but otherwise like i i enjoyed it it was fun i also started reading the comic book lock and key um not necessarily because there is a netflix show the netflix show looks kind of bad to me but i've just always heard that that comic series is great. It kind of came up three times in a week recently with different people mentioning it. And also too, be mentioning Joe Hill with uh, the Hill House comics right yeah, now. Yeah, we've mentioned him before. He's the writer of this series. I read the first two story arcs. It is not really fully pulling me in yet. There has not been like a tipping point where I'm like, oh shit, I'm sold on this. For those who don't know, it is about a family who kind of has like some loss and trauma and the two kids and the mother, the three kids and the mother, they all move into this old family house called Key House that has these weird magical keys that do wild bullshit when you open the right doors. So like there is a key that lets you unlock a door and if you walk through it you fucking die and your like ghost pops out and can run around and then your ghost can just fly right back into your body and you're alive again the second key that they find lets them like literally stick it in the back of your neck and like open up your head and see all your memories and your emotions and all this kind of shit and you can like manipulate that stuff and pull things out that's like the most iconic imagery from this series is is what you're just talking about with the lock in the back of the head conceptually the comic is very interesting it's just just not clicking with me it's it's maybe a little too dated at this point it's very mid 2000s in terms of like the characters and the look and the dialogue and that kind of thing so it's a little bit dated the artwork ranges from wow this house looks very very good and detailed and proper these vehicles look great there's all kinds of detail oh but these characters look like they were drawn by like a 15 year old kid who's way into anime like there's kind of a weird juxtaposition of these cartoony characters with really detailed everything else i'm gonna keep going because it's short. I mean, it's only like 30 issues total, I think. So I'm going to finish it up, but it's just not quite grabbed me yet. Now, on the other hand, I dug back into Gideon Falls, which that's a series that's been running for a while now. That is written by Jeff Lemire, and it was like the Eisner Award winner for Best New Comic last year. It's pretty fucking fantastic, and I also read recently that they're going to do like a TV show of it, but it's this weird kind of multi-dimensional horror thing of this one guy who is obsessed 
obsessively finding pieces like wooden splinters and scraps and nails and all this shit to like rebuild the black barn. So it's very, again, kind of Twin Peaks-esque of like this trans-dimensional kind of location that you can go to and access like all kinds of evils and everything else. There's a couple of other characters that kind of cross paths with him and there's like some time fuckery. It's very interesting. The artwork in it is also pretty interesting in terms of how the space is used and the formats used. So that's definitely something worth checking out. Yeah, I really got to get around and just reading that. I think I got the first issue of it and I don't even know if I read the first issue because by the time I got the first issue, it had been a couple issues in and the first printing of the first issue was already going for a little bit of money. I have no idea if it's still a collector's item now. I It's somewhere in my comic box is buried away, but um, at this point, I'll probably pick up a trade or something. Sure, yeah. The last thing I want to mention real quick, the most recent episode of Shockwaves, which is a podcast that I've been listening to for years, even when they were killer POV back in the day, they actually just had our boy Cullen Bunn on yeah, to buddy. specifically talk about horror comics. It is a movie-centric podcast with people who are like in the industry specifically, and it's usually people from the industry coming onto the show, but occasionally they'll take these little like sideways turns. But yeah, they just talked about Cullen Bunn's background and where he's from, which I was not expecting such a heavy southern accent off of him, but he's from South Carolina. I didn't so know that. that was huh. that was interesting. That totally makes sense looking at a lot of his work. Again, Cullen Bunn wrote uh, the comic Harrow County, which I fucking love. Harrow County is uh, low-key. It is, in my opinion, like one of the best comic series written in the past, like 10, 20 years. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really good. so good. Yeah. He wrote a Pumpkinhead sequel series, um, Man or Black. I mean, he's written all kinds of, he's got a new series out right now called Regression that looks super occulty and spooky and full of creepy shit that I had no idea he was even doing. Like, he's just that prolific that he's constantly churning shit out. So that was an interesting episode to listen through, and they all just kind of went around and talked about horror comics that they love, and they brought up some stuff that we've talked about before, like the Junji Ito comics and things like that. So, either way, that's all I've really got right now. Hopefully, before we record our next episode, I'll actually dig in and watch some horror instead of playing fucking Animal Crossing. So, uh, that's all I've got. Derek, how about you? Well, and on that note, so, I mean, from you, from all our friends, I mean, even checking our goddamn feed on Twitter for our show and my own Facebook feed, Amaro and I are like two of the only people in the world right now not playing Animal Crossing. Um, and on that note, I actually have a video game to talk about that I've been consuming that's more horror adjacent than just straight up horror, not Animal Crossing. It's called Neo 2. It is more of an action RPG, kind of almost like a mix between Ninja Gaiden and like Dark Souls. The combat's very hard. You die a lot, but it's not completely unforgiving. I'd say it's easier than a lot of the Dark Souls games even. It's much faster paced than a lot of the Dark Souls games, but what makes it kind of horror adjacent is the entire thing is set in the 1500s in Japan. I almost kind of like Fire Walk With Me. Most of the game is a prequel, but I think there are parts of it that are then a sequel to the first game and it's actually historical fiction because it follows like the rise of Nobunaga and you meet a lot of historical figures in his army and you're actually helping Nobunaga on his rise to power and in this kind of fictional version of Japan humans exist with yokai and yokai from our past house episode the yokai are like Japanese spirits and demons Uh, and you play as a half yokai and you design your own character and everything 
Do you have wild character options like, yes, I want to be this umbrella with 12 dicks and a bunch of arms? <laughs> no, like, no. Is it just fairly normal stuff? You still remain humanoid, but you could totally monster factory this shit up. In fact, I'm pretty sure Griffin and Justin will get around to doing this on Monster Factory. I hope they do. The game's design on the yokai is so fucking good and rad like i highly suggest going on google and just typing in like neo 2 yokai designs some of it ranges from like really just interesting looking creatures to straight up horror survival designs on some of these things and and a lot of times these things will attack you like as a jump scare like you'll just be walking and if you're not paying attention to like the ceiling it'll come down from the ceiling and attack you i jumped a couple times when there's this yokai where it's a snake woman kind of like a japanese version of a medusa but it looks more like like, you know, the ring ghost from okay. its torso up and then has a snake body. And it attacked me more than a couple times, dropping down from the ceiling, already <laughs> screaming, wrapping itself around me and then opening its gigantic <laughs> mouth, like elongated mouth and like eating my face off. Okay, this is nothing like what I thought Neo was. Based on like looking at the box, I just always thought Neo was anime sword guy, big hair. Oh, uh, game. no, no, no. It's There's not really much anime, quote unquote, hamming it up in it. I mean, it, it is kind of anime storyline a little bit but it's very historical like they're very like good about like treating like these historical figures you interact with with a lot of respect actually but like yeah when you're transversing the levels fighting yokai you're fighting off demons like you're fighting off Japanese demonic looking shit so actually while, while I've been talking about this I looked up the snake woman because a, I'm a really right interesting part of this game too is in between missions you can go back to like your hut and look up stuff um, like when you encounter creatures and kill enough of them you unlock actual folklore and the snake woman I've been bringing up is called uh, Nuriona. It's uh, and I'm probably butchering that. It's N-U-R-E dash O-N-N-A. So look up some stuff about her. She's pretty fucking freaky. But yeah, a lot of uh, a lot of the yokai you slay, you can go back and read the lore and a lot of the lore is interesting and you can find similarities between that like Japanese folklore and folklore around the world because like there's another yokai that's very much kind of like a woman in white. She kind of like attacks you with her white gown. It's very similar to the woman in white lore of from around the world of a wife who was murdered in a passion of rage or something and her spirit instead of moving on stays in this realm and becomes like twisted into this yokai monster again more weird connections to the movie we're going to be talking about yeah exactly so yeah neo 2 again don't just judge it off of the cover because it will just kind of look like you were saying anime kind of rpg action bullshit but there's a lot of horror in it just do yourself a favor look up the creatures and the game it's really cool and then the only other thing i wanted to touch base on uh before we we dig into our our icebreaker is I finally got around on your suggestion, Aaron, and a couple of uh, other people's suggestion on the What We Do in the Shadows TV series from FXX. So, first of all, have you seen the movie? No, and that's the interesting part. Okay. I actually was kind of debating on that, and I even looked up a little bit of, like, what should you watch first? And a lot of people were saying, honestly, you don't even need to bother with the movie, the TV show. You don't, because it's a different chunk of characters. Tonally, it's very much the same. I think the movie is fucking hilarious. It's a movie that's all 
also on our list. If we're going to do a horror comedy, that is certainly one that we could cover all set now. But yeah, the, the TV show is fantastic. Yeah, the first season is only 10 episodes long. I watched it in less than two days. I think I watched seven episodes straight in one day and then finished the last three the next day. And holy shit, I was laughing so fucking much out loud by myself so many times. And it, it very much is comedy horror because there was a surprising amount of, I guess, horrific imagery in it. But it's just all so tongue in cheek that like yeah. none of it really scared me. I love how when they're talking and they're, they are showing actual gothic art from history, implying that they're the ones that's, that are in the artwork. My favorite part was uh, when Naja was talking about like taking on lovers or when her and the Baron were having an affair, basically. They show yeah. one of my favorite pieces of artwork from history of that woman who's just has her dress up showing her vagina to that demon and the demon's like backing <laughs> off. <laughs> My God, it's so funny. And after I got through the season, there's that one episode that has like all the cameos from a lot of the characters from the movie and then other guest stars. Yeah, there's some f- fun cameos yeah. in that. I always assumed the TV show was just its own universe, own thing. But no, it's like set in the same universe as the movie. And they're actually coming out with another movie that I think focuses on the werewolves in this world. They've been talking about it for a long time. Yeah. yeah. It's, we are wolves. We, we're wolves. Werewolves. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, and I really appreciate it about the show is that like it has all of the telltale stuff of like vampire lore, like uh, even with like a feud with werewolves, but everyone is just kind of a fuck up. Like they don't know how oh, to yeah. really operate in modern society. And like, that's the funny thing is they are actually really extremely powerful. They could totally like fuck up tons of people, but they're just so incompetent when it comes to like <laughs> social cues and like operating in modern society that I'm trying to think of like the best example of it. It's kind of like how the angel and the demon and good omens like decide that they don't want the world to end because they're just kind of like this place is cool we like it here and that's kind of how the vampires are in this they're just like we're supposed to take over america but we just kind of are cool with what we're doing because the whole show is very much just the style of the office kind of that mockumentary feel about these vampires all living together sharing an apartment but one of the things from the original movie that still is one of the funniest fucking things i've ever heard was what do you prefer like drinking the blood of virgins i think we drink virgin blood because it sounds cool. I think of it like this. If you're going to eat a sandwich, you would just enjoy it more if you knew no one had f***ed it. That's a good line. And yeah, that movie is fucking great. That's uh, Taika Watiti did the movie. He's kind of this dandy, foppish vampire in it, very uh, Anne Rice style. But yeah, that the movie is great. We're definitely going to cover the movie eventually. I loved the movie. Are the episodes an hour long or are they 30 minutes? Derek? 30 minutes. Yeah. See, to me, I feel like that format would serve it better because I liked the movie, but I was like, okay, I get it. I get it. I get it. After a while. And so I think a show would, it would like move a lot faster to me. I think if it was a show. Yes. I'd like to give that a try. The first episode, the pilot episode, is one of the best pilot episodes of any show I yeah, think I've ever seen. Great. Like, it's fantastic. That's so fun. They cram so much entertainment into the 20, 22 minutes that they actually have that it's its amazing. And the characters... They're all great. Yeah. All great. All of them. I fucking love Matt Berry. He was also in Garth Marenghi's Dark Place, which I've probably mentioned on the show before. Um, and he's been in other stuff like Snuffbox and Mighty Boosh and things like that. He's fucking hilarious. Honestly, though, the energy vampire is like yeah. top notch. <laughs> like Everything with the energy vampire is 
like the best. I love the episode where like another energy vampire comes to the office place and it's just the two of them like fighting over this one dude in the break room and both of them are just, my dog died of dog leukemia the other day. Isn't that be sad for me? (laughs) I love how the energy vampire, it can feed off of other vampires and so no one else in the house likes him, but they never really explain why he's there and like why they're letting him live there with them other than that he's technically a vampire too but uh he's so much different than they are but yes meryl and everyone out there listening aaron you were fucking right go watch what we do in the shadows as the time of this episode dropping the second season will have started yeah i fucked that up i know no no no. i'm I'm laughing because i like thought of something else from that first episode where uh matt barry was like showing off his garden of topiaries that were just all carved to look like the vulvas of like all these historical women that he fucked (laughs) and then his favorite one is his mother's yeah awful Oh my god. <laughs> That's the episode that they have the werewolves because then he smells werewolf piss on it and realizes there's yeah. a werewolf in their yard. Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah, that fucking show is great and I'm I'm so glad it's coming back for a second season. There was a little bit more horror in it than I thought there was originally going to be. So hopefully, if all things work out, Doug Jones, who plays like the Baron in the first couple of episodes, he is supposed to be at Mississippi Comic Con still. We'll see what happens because that was supposed to be in June so who knows with everything going on right now if that actually goes on but you know (laughs) I was thinking about maybe going so we'll see how that works out I guess doesn't he also play something in Pan's Labyrinth he's the fawn he was the like eyeball hand guy he's the fish man in Shape of Water oh I didn't Um, know that he's been in so much shit yeah he's like one of those super skinny lithe guys that can like get in the monster makeup suits yeah he is he's down to clown with Sapien and Hellboy yeah he's been in tons and tons of shit But yeah, he's the one that played the Baron. Cool, cool. All right. Well, uh, real quick before we start talking about the movie, we're going to do a fun little experiment. Real quick, let's just back up. All three of us are huge Twin Peaks fans. Frankly, that's the only reason we're really covering this movie because it is kind of horror adjacent. But all three of us are huge Twin Peaks fans. And like I mentioned earlier, when we happened to be passing through the same town that Meryl's parents live in and we stopped by just to like say hey and hang out for a little bit. Me and Meryl got off onto our entire own tangent separate from everybody else talking about Twin Peaks of the Return. And we just got real deep into that, like, oh god, oh god, oh god. Plus, you had also just rewatched this movie we're talking about tonight, Fire Walk With Me, with your dad, which is a super uncomfortable movie to watch with your dad. I was gonna bring that up. <laughs> yeah. But either way, like, right then and there, this was before Derek and I, like, actually started recording, or maybe it was right after we started recording. But immediately, I was like, cool, done. You're fucking coming on this show. We're gonna talk Twin Peaks. We're gonna do it right so this has been like from the beginning very very like in the beginning long in the making episode because all three of us have been huge twin peaks fans for years like it was something that all three of us bonded over in college and after college so it's definitely something like we're all into that said beforehand when we were getting set up to record we all realized that all three of us own custom twin peaks styled tarot decks just for shits and giggles so we're gonna do something kind of fun and Meryl is gonna like do our tarot readings while we're recording just for shit's sake and let's see what characters we get and what situations we get so we're gonna use Derek's tarot deck because he has the full deck I don't know if you want to shout out
about where you got them. So I originally got them as a Indiegogo project, and it is just called The Magician Longs to See a Twin Peaks Tarot Deck, and it was created by Ben Mackey. I think it originally started off as like a fan thing, and yeah. it exploded, and I actually accidentally winded up pledging twice, um, not realizing it. Something happened with like the website or something, I clicked twice, so I was like, you know what, I'll get two, that's fine, and um, maybe I'll give the other deck to someone else, and the project got super delayed because it being a fan the project got announced. Yeah. Well, not only did the return get announced, but the, it being a fan project, it had to go through the right channels, uh, like uh, Mark Frost and David Lynch and whoever had to sign off on it being kind of technically a Twin Peaks official merchandise. And then it got delayed a second time for, like you said, the return. Ben Mackey, I believe, wanted to include a couple cards that had artwork from the return itself because it was mostly just all from the original series and fire walk with me so finally i got these cards i think around 2016 20 no it was 2017 because it was like during the return or right after the return had finished and i got both these decks and aaron and i had kind of both been almost on a week-to-week basis texting and talking to each other like each time a new episode would come out on the return being like oh what do you think this meant oh did you see this like blah blah blah, just kind of going through analysis The majority of our conversations were what the fuck is going on (laughs) this episode yeah yeah and like we would share like articles and stuff breaking them down and so i was like you know what um i'm gonna send aaron the second deck because i don't really need two decks for anything i don't do tarot uh, readings myself so i really had them more for the artwork and decoration so i was like aaron would love these so i sent them to him so that is the deck that i'm using long story short it's a kickstarted deck cool i had actually seen the deck that derek is talking about and wanted it but the project had ended before i came around to it so recently i was on instagram and obviously i follow the twin peaks hashtag and i saw this girl post about her deck so i have um not a full deck but the major arcana twin peaks by a girl named maddie who runs island of misfit toys co on etsy so that's just a plug uh these independent artists that are making this cool fan art but because i only have the major arcana we're going to use derek's deck and what we're going to do is just draw one card. So I should shuffle this, right? So shuffle it. All right. After you're done shuffling it, split it into three decks. And then we're just going to draw the top card for each of the three of us. And I will read from a tarot guidebook that I have by Kim Kranz, the Wild Unknown Tarot Guidebook which is not Twin Peaks specific, but I think we can all infuse meaning based on whatever characters we're pulling as well. Yeah. <laughs> while I'm doing this, while I'm shuffling, Meryl, did you recently start getting into tarot? Because I don't remember you really ever doing tarot in college. I did recently get into it. That's awesome. Probably maybe sometime last fall or maybe a little bit earlier. I started getting into it. And I'm very much like lightly into tarot. I think it's very fun, but mostly what I think it's cool for is sort of like giving yourself a different space to talk about things that you might not make connections to in normal conversations. Even like with your good friends, if you can spring stuff up in a way that takes you a little bit outside of maybe the thick of whatever you're dealing with or situation you're in, you can often find like a new way of talking about it or a new way of perceiving it. So I think of it as like very much like a conversation starter more so than the lore of it. Yeah. Yeah. I don't mean to in any way like trivialize or belittle people that are taking tarot more seriously than I am because I think that 
that there is a really interesting piece of it that they tap into in that way. I love the aesthetic and the mysticism around it, but for the most part, I love just that it can be such an easy way of drawing out conversations and like helping you yeah. to like put pieces together that you might not have thought before. On that note, I have three decks and I actually have them separated in a triangle format. Oh, wonderful. So what do I need to do next? I think that we should start with Aaron choosing without seeing one of the decks. Um, let's go middle deck. Uh, so the top, the very tip top of the triangle, you got the Empress, who I Ooh. believe is Catherine Martell. The Empress. Okay, yeah. Amazing. So let's read this and then we'll talk about how Catherine Martell fits into it. Okay, so the Empress. Creation, nature, the mother. The Empress is the mother or the goddess of the tarot. Her energy encompasses all that is warm, fertile, creative, and sensual in the world. Her strength comes from being gentle and compassionate and loving without binding. When this card appears, it's pointing to either a maternal relationship in your life or the side of yourself that wants to love more. The Empress also suggests it's time for you to reconnect with nature, go outside tonight, and find the moon. Okay. When we're talking about this in context of Catherine Martell... I must say that her gentleness and compassionateness is not there. Yeah, not the first things I think of. But that being said, I feel like there are parts of her that kind of come through at different points where you see that she might have been that way at some point. And then there is a connection to nature in that she wants to take down the ghostwood forest. Yeah, kind of the opposite. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so she's like the fucked up version of the empress then. yes yeah <laughs> the other thing we could think about is that often when you are doing tarot readings placement of the card is important so if it is inverted it can mean the opposite basically of what the card is saying so we can consider this an inverted empress if we want yeah since yeah, it's yeah. like basically exactly the opposite of what this yeah, really. card says so in either of those interpretations mansfield is there anything in your life i guess maybe with coronavirus right now you might be wanting to reconnect with nature since you can't connect with people is there anything else in that um, like i mentioned earlier i have been you know doing yard work and uh getting our yard kind of in shape and i've been working on a raised bed to get some vegetables and herbs and stuff going so uh yeah i guess that, that kind of works <laughs> uh so meryl what do i do with this card that i drew for him you can leave it out okay. yeah we won't draw that one again okay let's do yours next but i would like mansfield to choose where you pull it from so there's an element of like randomness there okay uh left deck holy shit that was the one i was gonna pick Ooh, perfect i got the three of swords nice and this one is the tape recorder ah oh cool with the swords going through it and it's upside down that looks really cool i love that this is really cool this is very in theme for today the three of swords Turmoil, a dark and complex card. Its wrath may come in the form of lies or heartbreak. There will be emotional entanglement and confusion. Do not try to make any decisions while in this state. Wait for your heart and spirit to mend. Interesting. So interesting. And Aaron, you know that like I don't have too many qualms of being like a little TMI when it comes to feelings on this. A joke that I was going to make later on in this show was that all three of us watched this under different states of mind. <laughs> Aaron may be a little drunk. And me may be a little depressed, but yes, I have actually been, uh, I've been kind of dealing with a depression load like the last several days. So that's kind of what immediately popped in my head when you said that. Interesting. Okay. So this is a call to not make any decisions while you're in the state, just kind of coast through it, waiting for your heart and spirit to mend. That's interesting. Well, and an interesting part of that too is, so I'm not a person who has really vices. After I was diagnosed with Crohn's, I, I stopped drinking and I don't smoke 
but I do have a problem that when I am feeling more depressed that I have a tendency to want to buy shit, just buy Mm -hmm. like stuff that I like to collect or own or read or whatever, even when I have so much other stuff to already that I don't need it. So the rash decision making is probably like don't spend money on stupid shit, which is exactly what I do when I when I'm like kind of in in this kind of mindset. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I like that this was the tape recorder too, because it's sort of maybe like a feedback loop that you're getting at this point in time that you just need to like wait till it stops and then you can move on before you try to make any decisions or do anything in this place. Very cool. Cool. Derek, would you choose a deck to pull for me? Someone do the bottom right. Okay. And you got... Actually, I'm not 100% sure because the artwork, it's the three of something. The three of coins or... I would think it's the pentacles. Probably the pentacles, yeah. Those are stars within a circle. That's definitely the bank scene, though, where Sherilyn Finn, like, handcuffs herself to the bank vault. Yep. Yeah. And the three pentacles are the one-eyed jack chips. Cool. Ah, and it's the three old guys. It's Andrew Packard and... Isn't that Milford? Is that his name? Yeah, I think it's Milford. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, and Pete Martell was there. That was Pete Martell, right? Pete Martell was at the bank, yeah. 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 So, the three of pentacles, let's assume that's pentacles because it's the only shape that makes sense um oh that's so funny okay so three of pentacles is teamwork determination focus which was definitely displayed during the bank scene the task ahead is a monumentous one usually related to your job or career the three of pentacles suggests you must focus all of your efforts discipline strategy and hard work are needed more than ever if you become weary or overwhelmed rely on those around you this is a card of teamwork so you may need the strength of others to conquer the mountain this makes a lot of sense for where I'm at career-wise. I'm a software engineer and recently started at a new company, which I'm loving. I also introduced a bug that broke part of production today, which <laughs> is my second time in two months to do so, which isn't necessarily super unusual, but is really hard to feel like not discouraged working through that kind of stuff. And I have really appreciated the sport of my teammates, even as we've all gone remote to help me figure things out and not to get down as I'm working through a lot of these things as uh, a new developer on the code base. So that makes a lot of sense. I need to just be like Audrey and Pete, go into that bank, chain myself to the vault. (laughs) Get it done. You want to know something crazy? So a couple of things I've noticed so far, Um, just kind of on a more like mental, even spiritual level, whatever you want to call it. All three of us are in situations where we kind of need to mend or reconnect in some way. But the thing that kind of is giving me goosebumps right now, and like, I didn't do the best job shuffling, but I shuffled this deck pretty hardcore. Like I said, split it into three, like a triangle, exactly like a triangle. We drew from the top to the left to the right. So we did all three decks once. The top card on all three that we drew are all threes. The Empress was three. Oh, weird. The Swords was three. <laughs> oh, I do have goosebumps now. The That's Pentacles really were three. weird. All the threes in this. Dun, dun, dun. Ooh, spooky. So any of our terror listeners out there who have anything else to add you know feel free but I saw this before where kind of seeing a tarot read on Twitch of them using different decks or different stacks of the same deck and then like different guests who got readings all having some weird fucking connection that is mathematically like improbable so we uh we fucking broke math guys <laughs> <laughs> that was really fun thanks for indulging that thank to you our Meryl yeah, that was fun. <laughs> we didn't have a fucking icebreaker 
order and you came in with this and <laughs> this was amazing i literally do have goosebumps now just realizing that all three of us got the raise like that's that is really bizarre crazy. that's so fun so yeah with that we are going to take a little pause for the cause so here's a message from us about our friends at nightmare threads What's up, fellow spoopy people? Are you shopping for horror movie merch to match the fear in your heart? Do you want to show your love and fandom for horror, or are you just looking for the perfect gift for that special mutant in your life? If so, check out Nightmare Threads, your one-stop shop for all things horror made for fans by fans. NightmareThreads.com offers clothing, apparel, and merch for numerous horror movies, TV shows, and other macabre pop culture. Nightmare Threads also has original horror content, articles, news, and more. So you can support us by supporting them. Check out our show's Twitter and Facebook pages for our unique referral link or use coupon code WATCHIFYOUDARE, all one word, no spaces, at checkout to save 10%. So just go to NightmareThreads.com and again, use our referral link or the code WATCHIFYOUDARE to save 10%. Watch horror, love horror, support horror. Shop Sally! Cool, cool. So this week, uh, as we've mentioned before, we are going to be covering David Lynch's follow-up to the Twin Peaks TV show, which is a prequel, the movie Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me from 1992. My secret diary. That page is missing. There is no other person who could have known where it was. Bobby give you this? Or is there someone new? Your Laura disappeared. It's just me now. You made me write it all down. Don't do that. She doesn't like that. How do you know what she likes? Twin Peaks. We finally did it. Oh my gosh. This episode might be a little weird. I feel like all three of us are going to just be like Chris Farley show kind of gushing, but also all of us are just going to have wild interpretations of stuff that's going on and weird observations. And like Derek mentioned earlier, I know I was definitely in an altered state of mind when I watched it most recently just to take down some like raw impressions. Well, this is something I wanted to ask you right at the Batmansfield because this is something I actually have never taken the time out to like sit down and look up and research. Why was the show canceled? Because I had heard that even at the end, it was extremely popular. Why did it only go those two seasons? Uh, it was a confluence of things. It was not super popular, like, by the time that season two kind of got on, because, okay, and let's just say this. Right now, spoiler alert, we are going to be talking about this movie, we are going to be talking about the series, we are going to be talking about the revival series, The Return. If you have not dug into Twin Peaks, 
stop, go back, watch Twin Peaks, because we're immediately going to be discussing. Let me go into my little newbie aside for like all the other noobs out there who are just trying to break into horror. Don't watch this movie unless you've watched yeah. Twin Peaks. <laughs> You're not going to have any clue what the fuck is happening. I mean, you barely already have a clue of what the fuck's happening, <laughs> even if you did watch Twin Peaks. But at least you know who everybody is if you watch Twin Peaks. Go watch the TV show. It's easy to come across. I'm sure you can find it It's somewhere. been on streaming for yeah. years on multiple services. It is totally available. It's a masterpiece. The second season's a little bit of a slog, but the beginning and the end of the second season are some of the best television I think I've ever watched. The whole first season is some of the best television I've ever watched. It is trippy. It is horrific. It is generally good criminal investigation kind of TV show at points. It is like a hokey soap opera at times. It's very tongue-in-cheek. Campy. Campy. It is very, very like a weird mix of esoteric horror and just the campiest, goofy, surreal shit. And I always praise like the idea of, oh, small town America, that's super innocent, having this super dark underbelly secret. This is it. Twin Peaks is exactly what I think of when I'm talking about that. It is the best version of that trope, in my opinion. So go watch the TV show. It can be pretty scary, so just prepare yourself. And then, as far as this movie goes, for those who, for whatever reason, have seen the TV show but haven't watched this movie yet, this movie is a must-watch for Twin Peaks fans. It's very infamous because a lot of people actually don't like it because of the tone it takes, and we'll get into that uh, in a minute, but it's a lot scarier than the majority of the show is. Uh, this is a legitimately solid horror psychological movie, and the couple scares that are in this are legitimately terrifying. A lot yeah. of the imagery when you see the spirits and the and like people are interacting with the spirits or you're in the Black Lodge itself is terrifying. It deals with such triggering issues as sexual abuse between a father and a daughter, drug use. I mean, a million of other fears. Like, what else? What am I missing? Like, there's this is very much a movie about. A girl who is in high school who is completely coming apart and unraveling and doing all the wrong things to cope with her long, long, long years of trauma. And it only gets worse. It's a very intense movie in that standpoint, yeah. Yeah, it only gets worse, and this is not really a spoiler because it's the whole fucking linchpin of the entire series is, in the end, she gets murdered. And at first, you have no idea who uh, who murdered her. At least in the yeah. TV show, you don't know. If you've been living under a rock, that's the whole point of the show is just who who killed Laura Palmer. That's where the show starts. That was the whole impetus for it. Um, I mean, the show was enough of a cultural touchstone back in the day that, like, I mean, that was what everybody was watching. You know, the Simpsons were, had, like, made fun of it yeah, <laughs> at the, the time. When the fucking Simpsons makes fun of it multiple times, like, it's something that's totally worth watching if you've not seen yeah, it. Yeah, you can, you can even YouTube, like, old Saturday Night Live sketches that literally have, like, Bob and all the other spirits from the lodge. But yeah, if you're going to watch this movie, go watch the TV series first the original TV series, watch this movie and then watch The Return that came out in 2016, 2017. It is fantastic. Yeah. It's all fantastic. And this is something I would say is after you watch it, go read up on it. And I know you're going to roll your eyes at that and be like, oh, well, that turns me off from wanting to watch it. No, it won't. Even when you have no idea what the fuck is going on in this, you are drawn in because that's David Lynch and David Lynch is a goddamn master. If this show clicks with you, you're going to want to just eat everything that you can get your hands on. 
the two books that were recently written by Mark Frost that tie into not only the main series, I read them the both. movie, and the revival show. Both of those books are essential. The fucking phenomenal books. It's definitely a huge world to poke into if you've not. And one last thing for people who are like, well, I don't like stuff that's overly complicated. The TV show is actually pretty straightforward. Yeah. There are a couple scenes, like specifically when the Black Lodge is introduced, where it's like kind of more Lynchian, like very interpretive, and I have no idea, kind of don't really know what's going on. But even those scenes, at least in the original run, are pretty straightforward. Start to finish, uh, you get a full picture of what's going on. It really isn't until Fire Walk With Me and then the Revival series where it gets really esoteric and kind of dreamlike and hard to follow. But yeah, the original, like what, 1989 is when season one started or 1990 or whatever. It's easily digestible, I I should say. Yeah, and it's two seasons by way of season one was all of eight episodes and then season two was 22 you know so it's not that long of a tv show to jump into um even the return was 18 episodes so it's definitely doable to jump back around to the question that Derek asked, part of the reason why the show was canceled was because, uh, spoiler alert, again, if you've not had enough warning, we find out who killed Laura Palmer like 11, 12, 13 episodes into the show. And so the whole rest of the show is just kind of downhill from there, getting deeper into the town and the characters and the world. But after that initial water cooler discussion was kind of out of the way and solved, lots of people just dropped off and it started going in a wild direction and it started getting kind of weird and campy and off the rails. Nadine getting superpowers was like kind of where like, (laughs) this is where people are probably dropping off. Also just James Hurley's weird film noir relationship with the woman with the dead tooth and just all this (laughs) other stuff. I forgot about that because it's totally just Dennis and Ponderosa. I just rewatched one of those episodes the other day. It's so weird. Heather and I just finished rewatching the original series. I been like bugging her and bugging her and asking her to watch it with me and it took us a little while but we finally like made it through the entire of the original series and it's definitely something that like she appreciates bits and pieces of but I mean like any other Twin Peaks if you've watched it you're either gonna be kind of hot or cold to it yeah that's how it is so I mean she's definitely watching it she's enjoying it for various reasons but it's not clicking with her the same way it did with me but I still enjoy like watching with her talking about the observations and everything and like we talked about the season too because it definitely goes off into weird tangents and some of them are interesting like all the like further exploration of the Black Lodge and Garland Briggs and like all that stuff but then there's yeah Nadine like getting bonked on the head and like thinking she's a high school student again and like that dumb shit but the ending of season two was so fucking shocking to everybody and it leaves you on such a cliffhanger and I didn't tell her what that cliffhanger was gonna be I didn't tell her it was gonna be a cliffhanger all I told her was like there were two seasons and when we got to the end she was like wait that's it are you fucking kidding me that's where this show leaves you off and i was just like yep <laughs> now you know how everybody else has felt for 25 years and that last episode of season two is one of the best single episodes of any tv show i've ever seen yeah and it is one of the scariest things i've ever watched in anything movie tv show video game whatever everything black or lodge related in that episode and is so fucking scary it has the one the one jump scare that 
to this day like still haunts me like it is the scariest jump scare in my opinion that I've ever watched and it, it's when you see Laura Palmer's doppelganger and she yeah. runs up at Coop screaming but her scream is backwards and her eyes are all white and demonic I remember when I was watching this because I, I actually to kind of correct you Mansfield we talked about Twin Peaks a lot in college but you were very vague with it because I hadn't sat down to watch it just yet uh, I was just digging into David Lynch I think we had watched Blue Velvet and you showed me his Dune movie and I had gotten a bunch of our friends over at our house to watch various David Lynch stuff because like a bunch of people were either kind of into it or wanted to watch it so like we definitely all watched Mulholland Drive together yeah. I definitely remember watching Blue Velvet with a bunch of us you gave me all the episodes to Twin Peaks and I didn't actually get around to watching it until probably a good year after we had all graduated because I was definitely working in the PIC when I did watch it I was like staying up all night I was working night shift and I was on a, a night that I was off and there was nothing happening because it was like a Tuesday and no one was out so after Savannah like went to bed I just stayed up watching Twin Peaks and I finished off Twin Peaks that night and it was like three in the morning when I watched that episode and I was not prepared for that jump scare from Laura Palmer's <laughs> doppelganger <laughs> but I just could not sleep because every time I closed my eyes I picture her fucking doppelganger in my face yeah. screaming I remember you originally had told me that you had thought that jump scare was in Fire Walk with me there's another one that you maybe are talking about that feels similar it's similar yeah 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 i had mentally per myself like oh that's not until fire walk with me i'll deal with it then and then it fucking happens in that episode and i wasn't prepared for it <laughs> but yes why don't we just like go right right in all this free talk with spoilers everything yeah yeah i mean there's no purpose to try and like shield it yeah yeah one of the things i want to talk about just like to set it up is what you're talking about in terms of like how the show got off the rails and why the tone changed so drastically and it's because like mansfield said they revealed the killer which was pressure from the network to do so yeah. that wasn't a decision by the co-creators to do that so I, know that. I think it was abc was the network and yep. they were feeling pressure from viewers to like reveal the mystery like come on we've gotten like a season in and still we don't know who this is so they did it but as a result of that david lynch actually sort of pieced out from the show for most yeah. of the second season and that's why the tone shifts okay. the directors shift <laughs> like a fuck done during the whole second season. Did you know that Diane Keaton directs an episode in the second season? I didn't mm, until I no. rewatched it. Yep. She directed one of my least favorite episodes of the entire show, too. <sighs> I think that that's a criticism I've heard. I cannot be critical of season two because I think it just has such a place in my heart and it like fills same, up so yeah. much lore for me that I just eat up even the crappy parts the of same it. Same here because like all day I will make fun of James Hurley and all his bullshit. Oh yeah. Nathan calls him blockhead. Yeah. <laughs> all day I'll make fun of them. But if you try to make fun of this shit and you haven't watched it, yeah. fuck off. Yeah. Get the fuck out of here. This is my thing. I love this. Even James yeah. Hurley. But that's what happens is like they they just have this rotating cast of directors and like input. So Mark Frost is still writing and Mark Frost and David Lynch honestly brought very different things to the table in terms yes. of the lore and the plot and the characters. So much so that I remember reading an interview at some point with David Lynch and someone was like, what about the owls? What do they have significance? He's like, I don't know. Mark Frost wrote about that. <laughs> it was just yeah. like, they just like brought so many different things. So anyway, toward the end of the second season, you can tell when the tone shifts because David Lynch comes back. 
it's the last two episodes of season two where he comes back and that's why that tone immediately flips around and you can tell like as the second season is going on even the characters are sort of losing their shape like Dale Cooper starts wearing flannel instead of his suit things are sort of very fluid and then last two episodes Dale's back in his suit uh we got some mystical stuff going on again and like you said that last episode is just wild well I'm glad you said the the last two episodes because that's exactly what I meant by the last episodes I just it's kind of a two-parter it's a two-parter episode but I just take it as one giant episode um Uh and I'm glad you cleared that up for me Meryl because like you're absolutely right looking back on it now like the first season feels very much like David Lynch and Mark Frost are like together they're on the same point then season two there's a lot of like different experimentation in terms of tone and everything but then those last two episodes feel like a return to form which is why I fucking love them so much honestly the return to me has a tone that's way more in line with those last two episodes and fire walk with me and that's the thing that's another reason why if you are a twin peaks fan but you haven't seen the return or haven't seen fire walk with me you must watch fire walk with me and then the return because the Mm -hmm. return actually takes quite a lot from fire walk with me it does it does yeah fire walk with me was made like two years after the show and it was totally under David Lynch's domain at this point and he was so into it and he really got to go in his very own direction for it I read something recently that when they sent this to theaters he had a note sent to each theater that asked them to turn the volume up by two decibels from what they usually had it at for the viewing experience and so I just love like this was really his pet project Uh, Mansfield I think you said this earlier it was an absolute total box office disaster it's horrendous. Yeah. yeah. So for you two specifically, because again, like I, I'm just ignorant on all of this. What was the production like this movie? And then why was it like booed at festivals when it was shown? The one, the only thing I've ever read or anyone has tell, told me about is they didn't like this movie because it feels so much darker than the original show. Well, and it is. Yeah. Lynch specifically like wanted to get back into the Twin Peaks world pretty much immediately, but he wanted to revisit Laura specifically because he was always very intrigued by her never thought that she was fully developed she was always kind of this you know MacGuffin for the entirety of the series right but nothing about her character was really fleshed out it was all hearsay it was all people's impressions of her it was all how she had affected people but we weren't getting any of it firsthand so the entire movie is built around that and it's literally just the last week of her life and audience reactions were pretty negative across the board for a variety of reasons partly people didn't realize it was going to be a prequel. People didn't realize that it was not going to be explicitly answering questions about the series and where things ended up and more just blowing up the universe as a whole, which Lynch and Robert Ingalls, who wrote a giant chunk of this original series, he co-wrote this movie. They originally intended for it to be a trilogy of movies to really like I didn't know that. cap off the entirety of the series, finish the entire narrative, further explore the Black Lodge, further explore the whole world, which is why there are mentions of things like Judy, which we joked about before we started recording, that gets mentioned in this movie, doesn't come back up. We're not going to talk about Judy. We're not going to talk about Judy. (laughs) So that's the stuff that they were putting those seeds in early because the plan was to do three whole movies to further like explore everything. And of course, that just didn't work. But personally, my theory is just, I think the like descent into the Lynchian darkness that kind of began with Blue Velvet through to this movie you know like Blue Velvet Wild at Heart Twin Peaks and you know this movie specifically all of that was just 
a few years. That was like a very short span of like five years where all this was going on. If you really want to get headcanon with it, like fan theories and all that, you could say that Blue Velvet, Lost Highway, and Mulholland Drive all take place in the Twin Peaks universe if you wanted to. Like they would fit right in. I'm also not unconvinced that fucking Eraserhead isn't just like literally in the world of the Black Lodge. Yeah, From that's like true. all the electricity shit yeah. to like the floor patterns and like the lady in the radiator and all that, right? But I think the problem is that real rapid descent into that David Lynch darkness from Blue Velvet through to this movie was maybe way too fast for audiences and critics at the time, for sure. Lost Highway a few years later is maybe the darkest movie he's done, and it kind of goes, and then by the time he gets to like Mulholland Drive, it seems like everybody has finally caught up to speed with him on his level of dark esotericness, because that was the like one that critically was like completely heralded in every way shape and form he was nominated for best director at the oscars that year it was nominated for best picture which is funny because my personal favorite lynch film is blue velvet which is still not quite so esoteric where it's almost yeah hard to interpret on your first watch it's still kind of more of a start to finish but he is introducing elements yeah he's refining a lot of the same ideas yeah. throughout the course because there, there are a lot of dream nightmare like scenes in Blue Velvet that kind of don't make sense on initial viewing. But I'll say this too, because Heather and I had a conversation after we watched Firewalk with me and the one thing that she was having some trouble reconciling was, and this is a valid criticism, it completely is, just why are some elements so fucking weird for the sake of being weird when you could just have the darkness and have the weird stuff without having to be so esoteric about it. And the thing that she specifically pointed to was the whole bit with Lil, where she's like doing her weird interpretive dance and like okay they pulled all these clues from that but like why have Lil why not just speak in code and then have the other agent reassess that and explain it but having that visual component leaves you kind of wanting more and being confused about what you're seeing and you having to do a little bit of the work and to your point Derek Blue Velvet is pretty straightforward in terms of like the story and the narrative it's trying to tell but the movie fucking starts with this idyllic town and all these like white picket fences and bullshit and the camera like zooms slowly down into the fucking grass where you see all these bugs like fighting and destroying each other yeah, yeah. and like that one shot is the metaphor for the entire fucking <laughs> yeah. movie you know like uh-huh. it, sometimes you don't always know what you're looking at oh I lap that shit up like a cat <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, there's one more thing about the production of Firewalk with me that I think contributed a little bit to why it wasn't received as well. And it's a small part, but I think people really wanted to see a lot of their favorite characters return yes. for this movie. And they didn't for two reasons. One, because like Mansfield said, he wanted to focus on Laura. So that was mainly why. Like he wanted Laura to be the focal point. He wanted to tell her story from her point of view. The second reason for some of the characters is I don't think that this is super confirmed for everybody, but there was a feeling of abandonment from the cast. Yeah, some people just didn't like how season two went and the direction it went in, the direction their characters went in. Yeah, they felt abandoned by David Lynch, specifically, because he left the show. There was a feeling of, I I don't know if I want to be associated with this. Even Kyle MacLachlan initially did not agree to do Firewalk with me. He came back around and they wrote him into the script later. So, like, there's a bunch of characters that don't show up because they were like, "Mm, 
I want to move on with my life. See, this is what's so fascinating to me about Twin Peaks in general, like just the franchise. Everyone who is involved in actually creating it, like hands-on, Lynch is the director and, and all the actors, all seem to ha- love this project and have a passion for it. But then the minute that studio rears its ugly head and gives the notes or whatever, it dictates too much, either Lynch or some of the actors just run away and like they don't want to come back. Mm-hmm. I also feel like after Fire Walk With Me came out and it was received the way it was, at least initially, like very negatively, Lynch seems like he always still continued to love Twin Peaks but was just also just oh but we're not going to get the band back together because it like it ended ugly so we'll just leave it where it is yeah Mm -hmm. from everything I've ever read that was kind of the case like even with the return the return was announced like what 2014 he actually backed out of the project for a little while and it was put on hold if y'all remember that I remember that I think there was something to do with people trying to fuck with the production maybe yeah it's just so funny that you have all these people who are like we want to make this we want to make this but then Mm -hmm. just like don't Mm want to make it like it's like well you want to ring their necks you're like we want you to make this fucking do it and ultimately it paid off because he got to direct ostensibly an 18 hour long movie (laughs) that is fully truly 100% like his vision Mm -hmm. good and bad however you feel about it you know Frost was also not involved with the movie either and it's kind of the same thing like they kind of had a strained relationship by the Mm -hmm. time that the show ended because Frost had stuck around through season two for most of it and when it came time to do this movie like Lynch kind of did that on his own and was like hey I'm gonna do this deal like he literally announced oh yeah I'm making a Twin Peaks movie a month after the show was canceled and Frost was like wait what huh sorry right so like they kind of didn't really have the best relationship at the time which obviously things have kind of mended since Lynch ended up writing this movie with Robert Engels who that guy had a fucking weird career he wrote 10 episodes of the original show but then he like just produced stuff like On the Air and Sequest and Andromeda but kind of to Meryl's point there were a lot of people who you know like didn't end up being this movie Lara Flynn Boyle is obviously the most obvious one she played Donna in the original show and they recast her in this movie with Moira Kelly who uh, kind of a like a very popular opinion with people who like this movie is that they do like Moira Kelly better as Donna and I kind of am of that opinion I like her Uh, I do too I kind of like her more in this movie yeah I feel like it's hard because I think I like her more in this movie I think I like the original Donna for the show I feel like they both fit where they do because this movie is so much darker and because it's more sexualized I think that Moira is a better fit for this movie yeah the show Donna definitely has a much better arc because she's Mm -hmm. just given full episodes and like hours of TV yeah but as far as just look and style and tone of acting I like the movie more Lara Flynn Boyle's very aloof in the original show Mm -hmm. and Moira Kelly has more of an innocence to her and that's definitely something that works in this movie where you see the way that they are dressed, the way that they carry themselves, the way that they speak to other characters. Even though they're supposed to be the same age, Moira Kelly really does come off still as a little girl. And so that dynamic between the two of them where Donna is just chasing, chasing, chasing after Laura, Uh like wanting to be like her friend and wanting to like spend time with her friend and her friend is like way beyond her in a lot of worldly kind of ways where, you know, it gets to the point in the movie where she says like, no, I don't want you to be like me. Like I have fucked up. I am a broken person. You don't want this back up you know and that dynamic works so much better because of the two actresses and that dynamic between them and that maturity difference it seems well also i think it's interesting to note that we don't know what the dynamic is between laura flamboyle because we've 
literally True. never seen it on screen. And I think that's something True. to think about. That is interesting point. Yeah. We actually don't have that dynamic. We don't have a baseline for it. So this is the first time we're seeing Laura and Donna interact ever, yeah. except for the one video that we have. So like you're saying, like we see this like longing from Donna in the movie that in the show, it's like a wistfulness and like, I miss her, but like, can't, I don't have to chase her anymore, you know? So like, yeah. I'm not really making a judgment at, at all. I'm just sort of thinking about that now because that's interesting. Not to get like two page seven about it, but Laura Flynn Boyle also dated Kyle MacLachlan during the TV show. Was there anything to do? Because I think they ended their relationship before this movie came out or during the production of this movie. Did that have anything to do with it? I don't know that there was anything happening behind the scenes, but I know that that's a lot of the reason why they ended up changing Sherilyn Finn's character so much. Okay. Because she was originally supposed to be very much Cooper's kind of sidekick Girl Friday kind of character which that's how the show is kind of building her to be for a while. And then that all kind of falls apart. And there was eventually supposed to be a like full blown romance between them once she like graduates in the show. But Lair Fun Bloy, like from the beginning, was like, uh, no fam, like no relationship between them. I don't want like my boyfriend having to do scenes with them. And it, I, yeah, in hindsight, yes, a like grown ass FBI agent man dating a high school girl is very icky. Yeah, like I'm kind of glad so, they did not do that because Christ. <laughs> her being like Robin to his Batman and being like junior sidekick detective that angle would have been interesting I think but I'm glad that there was no romance subplot so yeah like props for her for like bringing that up as like a oh yeah don't go in that direction kind of thing but ultimately like she also kind of said it was some scheduling stuff which that was the same thing that Sherilyn Finn and Richard Boehmer who plays um, her dad Ben Horn none of them were included in this movie at all they shot nothing there was no anything of them in this movie lots of other people had scenes. So just the other characters, Sheriff Truman, the Haywards, Big Ed and Nadine, Pete Martell and Josie Packard, Lucy and Andy, Hawk, Jacoby, and Garland and Betty Briggs. All of those characters, not in this movie. They all extensively shot scenes because this movie was originally five fucking hours long. David Lynch kind of works from that standpoint where he shoots way more than he needs and then through the editing process kind of whittles it down to like a workable length and they shot five hours worth of content for this movie and ultimately cut it down to like 215 and a lot of the scenes have been excised and cleaned up and curated by Lynch into this other special called The Missing Pieces which was finally released on the like 2016 or whatever Blu-ray set and it's also on the Criterion release of this movie so if you buy that Blu-ray set it has Missing Pieces which again is a feature-length movie of just deleted Deleted scenes, scenes. which (laughs) I'll talk about kind of at the end, because there are a couple that I feel like are actually pretty important that maybe should have been left in this movie. But anyway, yeah, a lot of those people shot stuff, and it just got trimmed out, you know? And frankly, I feel like there's some other stuff that could be still trimmed out of this movie, but to circle back around to what we were talking about with seeing Laura kind of fully formed in this for the first time, rather than just having these, you know, secondhand accounts of her and just hearing about her through other people's filters, because obviously that was like a whole point of the show was like this prom queen, homecoming queen, whatever she was, like idealistic, perfect little like high school girl having this really dark 
side underneath and all these people around town like either having a very clean scrubbed washed impression of her as a person or these people that like really know how dark she was and the things she struggled with and you finding out all those competing opinions of her over the course of the show it's all still secondhand so being able to go back to it and see her you know is super important and I think it's also interesting to see her interactions with both of the boys um, James and Bobby because again you're getting their side of the story throughout the entire show of what she meant to them and then you really see oh she's basically just using Bobby as a drug connect she didn't give a fuck about Bobby really she maybe connects with him emotionally because they have been kind of down in that hole together so they have like some connection in that standpoint but she definitely just thinks James is you know kind of a sweet idiot you know oh you're trying to play this tough boy but you don't really know what tough is you know I know what that darkness is maybe uses him for the emotional support sure yeah safe protection well, one, one real quick thing was it just reminds me of that meme I saw where it's like Laura Palmer was able to simultaneously have three ongoing relationships, have multiple <laughs> sexual encounters with other men, have a drug habit, be the, the homecoming queen, work meals on wheels, and still have time to like write in your diary, you can do anything if you put your heart to it or something like that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you can keep a journal. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So there you go. Uh, um, I don't know if we want to get into this right now, but one of the things while we're talking about her relationship with Bobby and James that I thought was really interesting that really comes out I don't know if y'all have read The Secret Diary of Laura Palmer yeah that's the one thing I haven't read yet so that that's a book written by David Lynch's daughter and I think it was written before the fire walk with me I can't remember it the was timing. yeah it was yeah, Jennifer Lynch wrote it before the movie yeah so it's fleshed out a lot more in the diary itself but something you can see in the movie is when she choosing partners I find that whatever person they are they always only see one side of her yeah. they like refuse to see her whole person except for notably Dr. Jacoby so for Bobby and James even though Bobby like tries to act like a tough guy he loves Laura for like the beautiful like joyful soul that she is and so does right. James they both keep seeing her as this like person that they can save they can bring back and yeah. she tells them explicitly in different points in time that Laura is gone I'm here yeah. now I'm the one that's left and she's like trying to tell them that Laura is like buried deep inside me. She can't come play right now. But I find that she's still choosing people who only see one side of her to be with. And it's like she's living in such a dichotomy that she's craving people to validate one or the other side whenever she needs that validated. And so the other people that she chooses to spend time with, like Leo and Jacques, are seeing the bad girl side of Laura. Yeah. And they're feeding that when she needs it. And then the only person in the series that I think sees both really is Dr. Jacoby, who she's sort of like into, but also sort of grossed out by. There is a scene in the missing pieces where he calls her at home. Yeah, and I saw that. That was gross. And like, chat with her. And she's like, why the fuck did you call me here? Don't do this ever again. Leave me alone. Don't ever talk to me again. And he's very much just trying to like connect with her and like see how she's doing. But she's just so put off by the idea that he's breaching that doctor yeah. patient kind of thing. And, trying and he to get also personal. says something about like, send me a kiss. And she's like, bleh. Yeah. <laughs> The one thing I wish, because I didn't know this about Dr. Jacoby until y'all started talking about this just now. I wish they would have just written fucking Harold Smith out of this and made Dr. Jacoby, like, let him be the one who gets, like, the diary and all that. That is yeah. one of those things that, like, makes me 
makes me roll my eyes when I watch even the the first season when he like takes the rake and he has it on his cheek and he's trying to corner Donna. It's just like you're as threatening as tissue paper, bro. Like, <laughs> go back yeah. to your garden. To that point, there are still some things in this movie that really feel unnecessary and are really only there because they have to connect back to the show. And Harold is one of those things because in the movie they don't fucking explain who he is, what relationship they have. They don't explain the fact that he's agoraphobic and she's been bringing him food. She just shows up at this guy's house. He's the Meals on Wheels guy. Yeah, exactly. But they don't even go there in like the movie. You know that she's doing Meals on Wheels, but there's not a connection of who that character is. It's one of those you had to have seen the show to know that. Yeah. And there's a couple of other bits and pieces kind of along those same lines. Just fucking watch the show and then watch it. Yeah, I think there's no reason to watch this movie without seeing the show. That's the best way to explain it for sure. But there's definitely just stuff like if you're watching this like in a vacuum, that's the stuff where like it's not going to make sense. It's not going to connect. You're not going to know what's going on. If you don't pay attention in the show, there's even things that just like aren't going to fucking make sense. Yeah, but I I think we've really... I think we've set this up. A requirement, watch the show, then watch this movie. This movie's yeah. pretty scary. It's darker than the show in general. Watch it before you watch The Return, then watch Return. So I think, I'd say, like, y'all want to dig into this? Yeah. yeah we, could, we could try, yeah. Last thing I want to say, too, Cheryl Lee, you know, we're going to kind of get off in, like, a weird tangent because this movie starts in a weird place, but Cheryl Lee being the central character in this is so fucking good. And, you know, Heather and I were kind of talking afterward, like, what did she go on to do after this? Like, what did Cheryl Lee go want to do after this and you know the answer is not a whole lot but I found an interesting quote from Grace Zabriskie who plays Sarah Palmer her mom in the show and she said she gave everything she had she gave more than she could afford to give and she spent years coming back and that definitely explains probably a lot of why her career like never super took off because she's fucking amazing in this movie and she's kind of always perfectly pitched to the intensity of the scenes that she's in and she gives such a multifaceted and interesting performance that is very fucking heartbreaking by the end of this movie but it's so good to like see her really fully formed as this character that you spent hours only hearing about in the show despite the weird shit in this movie like it's it's very much a centerpiece for her as a character and her performance so I definitely appreciate that aspect she really is fucking phenomenal in this and again she comes back in the return in one form or another I'll leave it at that and in the little bit that she's in the return for she is also fucking phenomenal yeah she's like had a career like she's been in a bunch of stuff she's just never been as elevated as she is in Twin Peaks she's just mostly been character appearances and random things here and there uh, she was actually in Bioshock 2 uh, she voiced a splicer <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah she was a splicer in, in Bioshock 2 that's but, um, funny before we do the plot run through uh, Meryl keep that in mind about the different aspects of Laura, like the good Laura, the bad Laura, etc. Because I have an interpretation from this movie that ties directly into that. Awesome. I'll leave it at that, and then I'll, when it comes up later, I'll, I'll bring it up again. Cool, cool. So the movie starts, the whole first chunk of the movie is a bit off kilter from what you're going to expect based on what we've talked about so far. So the movie starts with... FBI Regional Bureau Chief Gordon Cole. Well, I mean, it, it starts with a scream and a TV getting, like, uh-huh. kicked in or something. Yeah, if we want to get that literal.
literal. <laughs> yes, like we're literally seeing like static on a TV screen as the camera slowly zooms out. Um, and then, of course, the TV gets taken out with an axe. Um, so, you know, yeah. I guess read whatever metaphors you want to in that. This isn't TV anymore, you know? I don't well, know. I think that's actually the Teresa Banks murder scene. It yeah, is, it yeah. is. Yeah, and it's... Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll say it's a jump scare right off the bat because like that screen yeah. is out of nowhere very unsettling. <laughs> yeah. But we start with Gordon Cole, played by David Lynch. He is the FBI head who kind of has this very specific division, the Blue Rose Task Force. And the Blue Rose Task Force actually has an actual conspiracy theory history. There's a real world connection there. Yeah, you know? it's based off of the task force that the government, and this is true, like put together to investigate UFOs. And it's interesting because in the books, a lot of history that the books go into of saying that the Blue Rose Task Force started off as investigating UFOs and then it turned into like connection between UFOs and the spirits of the forest around Twin Peaks. Yeah. So Gordon Cole, once again, he calls upon two FBI agents, Chester Desmond, played by Chris Isaac, and Sam Stanley, played by Kiefer Sutherland, to go investigate the murder of a teenage girl in a town in Washington. The girl is Teresa Banks. We find out that she was kind of a drifter prostitute, and that's kind of a murder that is mentioned in the background of the main TV show. So this is kind of, you know, setting up... Up, all of that. This happens all a year before the TV show does. And again, this was all originally supposed to be an investigation by Dale Cooper. What we get instead are kind of these two guys who, like, if you put them together, they seemingly create the, like, character of Cooper because Chester Desmond is kind of all the, like, cool, suave, the ideal, chisel-jawed FBI agent guy. And Sam Stanley is kind of the more, like, geeky, attention to details, very, like, introspective person of the two where Kiefer Sutherland's career goes like him being fucking Jack Bauer and all that it's pretty funny that he plays Agent yeah. Stanley in this it's kind of weird in that standpoint the other thing I'll say is this interestingly enough all the Blue Rose agents are musicians they're all real life musicians oh that's funny Anyway, yeah, Chris Isaac, you know, he's mostly known for his music, but he was in Jonathan Demme's Married to the Mob, which then led to him having a cameo in Silence of the Lambs. Interesting note there is Anthony Hopkins obviously played Hannibal Lecter in Silence of the Lambs. He was in David Lynch's Elephant Man years prior. So there's kind of a weird cross connection there. David Lynch also directed the Wicked Game music video. Oh, did he? Yeah, that's like one of the sexiest songs and music oh, videos like ever fucking made. Yeah, David Lynch directed that and so that's how we kind of like had a connection with chris isaac i was wondering that's so funny lynch is also just like a huge music head to begin with yeah speaking of music angela badalamenti's score for this fucking movie cooks yeah it might be better than the tv show it's iconic the score for twin peaks is iconic yeah, and Kiefer Sutherland, like, by this point, he had been in Stand By Me and The Lost Boys and Young Guns and stuff like that. He was also in Flatliners, which that's a movie on our list that you're going to find hilarious, Derek. Yeah. And he went on to be in all kinds of shit. I mean, 24, A Few Good Men, The Vanishing Freeway, which is a fucking bananas movie I watched recently. Dark City and Melancholia, which Heather and I watched that, like, the first day that we got stuck with, like, work from home. Um, Lars von Trier movie about the world coming to a fucking end. Wait, so- Kiefer Sutherland is in that? Really? 
Bro, there's all kinds of people in melancholia. I there's no lots idea. of people in melancholia. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, yeah, we have these two new agents who weren't in the show who have like no connection to anything Twin Peaks thus far. They are just new characters being sent. And again, the thing that I think is kind of interesting, the more I was watching it, all of this first part where these two new guys are being tasked to go investigate a murder that is very similar to the Laura Palmer murder in every way in a town in Washington that has all the same kind of vibes as Twin Peaks. This whole thing essentially is just a doppelganger version of Twin Peaks. It is all the same beats. It's all the same shit. And there is a diner and there's weird patrons in Uh the diner. And you can tell that all those characters probably have their own stories happening on the background. But everything is kind of off kilter and dark and evil. And there's not any hint of that small town quirky innocence that you get from Twin Peaks. This town is just the dark underbelly. But it's very much the like doppelganger version of Twin Peaks in that way. The police themselves are like hyper corrupt whereas the police in Twin Peaks are what police should be like super helpful all about the people. Well there's even like a dark Lucy and Andy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There's like the dark sheriff. There's the dark diner. Like there's just Mm -hmm. the inverse of everything and even the Teresa Banks character that they're going to investigate. She is not the homecoming queen that everybody's in love with in the town and she's just like, oh, this wonderful girl that everybody knew. No, she's a fucking drifter. She's a prostitute. She's a drug head. Like, a character literally is just like, no, nobody here knows her. Yeah, they ask if she has friends and they're like, nope, no friends. Nope. Yeah. No boyfriend. Everything is completely the flip opposite. Mm-hmm. Did y'all notice this? When they're in the diner, here's your first hint of electricity. Yes. Then the background of the diner, there's somebody trying to like fix a lamp mm-hmm. and he just keeps shocking the lamp and you just hear the electricity and see the lamp continually flashing and electricity um, this was something I'd brought up to you Aaron specifically that I, I remember texting you is like during their turn is I don't remember electricity being that huge of a thing yeah. in Twin Peaks in the show it's not it's all from this movie and yeah. in Fire Walk With Me it, it's all over the place like yeah. whenever electricity is around that means like the Black Lodge is kind of its presence is around yeah and there's a piece of the missing pieces that like there's more of a scene with that guy fixing the lamp and oh, yeah? it's just like it's longer three minutes of this old guy talking not saying anything important and the guy behind him just zapping that thing so it's just like a strobe for three minutes right before you get into the diner even yeah so yeah they're definitely hammering home that electricity bit there electricity is definitely like a conduit for these spirits to move around like it's definitely kind of one of those weird ways that they can slide in and out of our plane of existence and there's lots of electrical things like Laura's fixation with her ceiling fan Uh in this movie. Like, not only is that ceiling fan an electrical conduit for, like, how these spirits kind of slide in and out within her room, you have that angle, but then you also have the, like, let's strip away the esoteric bullshit. Leland turns on the fucking fan to mask him creeping around in the house at night when he's coming to get her. For all the, like, ooky spooky esoteric shit, you can also completely read it as flat. And a lot of it just being delusion and fear that's wrapped up in, like, a real-world kind of explanation. But anyway, yeah, like, this whole town that they go to, even, like, the way that... 
Teresa Banks is presented. You know, Laura is this angelic figure wrapped in plastic, perfect hair, and, you know, everything about her, like, dead corpse is still beautiful, you know? And this girl, messed up hair, like, eyes wide open, jaw slack, everything about her is just the complete opposite. But they find one of the letters tucked underneath her fingernail and that was a moment where Heather was just like oh fuck watch them like peel back her fingernail to get that letter out yeah it's a, that's a pretty that brutal one of the big scene. clues from the original show yeah but that's one of the things that like if you're again if you're watching this movie in a vacuum you're not gonna have any fucking clue what that means or what yeah. it connects to what was that supposed to spell out again like when they find the letter in Laura Palmer's uh, nail and then later on in Maggie Ferguson in the TV show like was there something it was supposed to spell out I had heard that it was Robert yeah oh uh, okay that makes because sense. Because it's R under Laura's finger. Yeah. It was like Killer Bob's actual real world name beforehand. Something like that. So anyway, like I mentioned a second ago, there's like the weird scene with Lil where they like, you know, land in Washington. They get debriefed by this really strange woman who's like bright red hair, red dress, doing a weird dance, making a weird face. And they're kind of getting this coded message from David Lynch about the situation because he's trying not to like spill all the beans of talent they're going into like completely explicitly because there's potential corruption in this town. That and you just get the idea that Gordon Cole is fucking weird and fucking runs this whole weird segment of the FBI so he just does things his own David way. Lynch is playing David Lynch if David Lynch was an FBI director. Yeah. Like that's all this is. But it's totally one of those bits of the movie where again like Heather was kind of struggling with why is this here? This, this might just be too much weird for the sake of being weird for me. But yeah she has this blue rose lapel on and that kind of gets the conversation going where the two FBI agents like explain the town and kind of the situation and what they're going into and the Blue Rose specifically has to do with Cole's task force which Sam Stanley is kind of being brought into this task force he's kind of the odd man out who was like not part of it to begin with you know so sure everything could have been delivered in that scene with coded dialogue that just gets explained later but like the perplexing visual is more interesting means of delivery in my opinion at least if I just want somebody to talk at me like fine but you know Derek and I have definitely talked about this before like the whole idea of show don't tell is the most effective way to like deliver things in cinema right like it's a visual medium don't just fucking talk at me yeah. um, that's what podcasts are for with them in this backwards town after like they see the body and they find the letter and all that they actually go to the trailer park which this yeah. was a nice return in the return was this minor character who is super minor in this movie Carl Rod who owns the Fat Trout trailer park played by Harry Dean Stanton. Harry fucking love. Dean fucking Stan. And he, this character actually comes back for quite a few episodes in The Return. Yeah. They are basically following it up because there's a ring missing. Teresa Banks was said to have had a ring. They noticed the mark on her finger, like the tan line where it's missing. And they're yeah. thinking that maybe the police stole it or it was someone who found the body stole it. And they wanted to do follow-up because Teresa, was she living at the trail park or was she staying yes. with somebody there? They went to go, and this is kind of where like the esoteric stuff comes in and the whole, you know, we did tarot earlier just the whole like weird coincidences and things that kind of take you in certain places they go to the trailer park to look at her trailer and the whole time they're kind of drawn to these other places and areas and Harry Dean Stanton's character specifically is like no I want to take you to this one like no but we're gonna go here instead like show us you know this person's trailer instead interesting enough I don't know if y'all knew about this but Harry Dean Stanton's character Carl Rod in the books that recently came out after the return and during the return, 
um, that Mark Frost himself wrote, there's a bit about a Cub Scout troop going out in the woods near Twin Peaks and yeah. having missing time, like having an abduction scenario, basically. And among them are a bunch of people in the town, actually, of Twin Peaks that grow up later on. Well, one of them is Carl Rod. He's one of the ones that, quote unquote, gets abducted and has this marking. I think it's the Twin Peaks marking of those triangles on his the back of his knee, like his left or right knee after it happens. Just another interesting because there's a scene in this where he zones out for some reason. You hear the electricity. Yeah. Yeah. You see that phone pole, the energy mm-hmm. pole. Power line. Power line, yeah, sorry. Yeah, it's one of the like main big clusters in this trailer park where there's lots of juice flowing through it. So you're constantly just getting that David Lynch oral background hum. You see the number six on it, and that actually shows up two or three more times throughout all of Twin Peaks. I think it shows up once or twice in the original series, yeah. and it shows up again in the return in another scene with Carl Rod with Harry Dean Stan's character. And this is kind of something that I know I gushed about with the control video game. The thing I love about Twin Peaks is that these like quote unquote nexuses of power and reality where these spirits are sliding in and out are just the most unassuming shit like a power uh-huh. line or a ring or whatever and like all these weird things are happening in like middle of nowhere America rather than like Ghostbusters like oh we have to climb the fucking Empire State Building or whatever and yeah. the nexus of power is this giant huge building like no these are like run down fucking trailer park where it's obvious in the coming scenes that the spirits have fucked with basically yeah and the books get deeper into like ley lines and all kinds of other like wild shit as to like why this whole place is kind of a nexus yeah I, I think the thing that struck me about the books is like when it starts very early in the Lewis and Clark expeditions and they're interacting with the Nez Pierce Indian tribe that's there is yeah. when the ring first shows up and everything and I feel like to me there was like the insinuation that a lot of the great spirits and evil and the reason for it concentrating in this area of the world it was because of the violence done to the tribes by white people moving into the area yeah and so it clustered there and had a place for it to ferment yeah which I really liked that explanation or whatever for why there's this cluster in the Pacific Northwest specifically yeah and you nail it on the head too because I think even Hawks his ancestors are those Native mm-hmm. Americans and that goes back to him like talking about the spirits of the forest and right. like um, I think at one point in either the show or the books or somewhere the owl cave and the ring itself was used by the Native Americans like the spirits yes. gave the Native Americans the ring yeah. to be able to converse with them in the Black Lodge and that these spirits may have always looked like that the way they do in the Black Lodge always looked like that and at the time it was unknowable to like you know the 1700s 1600s however long ago but like modern times have cut up to like where like the Black Lodge even though it's still esoteric as shit and like kind of dreamlike it's more I guess digestible as instead of like having someone out of time like go in there mm-hmm. well not just that but there are things about the Black Lodge that now feel dated so it's like we've almost passed the time where the Black Lodge is occurring where there's a very like 19 kind of 50s look and feel to it my theory this gets like deep off into fucking everything but we know that with season three the return there's that whole eighth episode that is just a fucking black and white silent film mm, yep that Love masterpiece that. yeah <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah. <laughs> With the atom bomb testing that Sarah Palmer was exposed to, it's almost like the Black Lodge stylistically like expressed itself in that moment in kind of a new way mm-hmm. that was stuck in the 40s and time has kind of moved on since then. But yeah, the ring is definitely like a central thing in this movie that becomes a big deal in the show, but the ring was not that big of a deal in the original series. No. It kind of shows up here and there, but it's not as big of a thing as it is in this movie. Although the symbol is... The yeah. symbol Which is, the, yes, ring the symbol on the bears. ring. Yeah, and that, that symbol is, I think, what's supposed to be, like, behind Carl Rod's leg, like, after his abduction. Yeah, right. The owl symbol, yeah. When we're talking about that scene that you mentioned, I had a question about that for y'all. When he zones out, it's right after the curious woman walks into the trailer. Yeah, that old creepy woman who's kind of almost an evil doppelganger log lady. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I was going to yeah. bring up. So, the things that struck me about her, I actually didn't think about the log lady, but first... Obviously, she looks like the woodsman because she's blackened like they are. Yeah. But secondly, what struck me immediately was the way that she was shaking reminds me of the first time we're introduced to the man from another place in the series. His shaking. Remember, he's like turned around and he's just like shaking in a weird way before he turns around. He's like, hello. (laughs) It feels like the same movement to me. And so those two things don't know how to reconcile that. Don't know why Carl cares. But I didn't know what y'all took from that. I actually follow Meryl your interpretation a little bit more because when she just shows up, he zones out and they ask that question like, have you seen anything? And she's just sitting there shaking. You then hear a faint kind of noise coming out of the utility pole that we were just talking about. Yeah. So that makes me think that she might be a manifestation of the spirit that came out of the utility pole because she's like a woodsman, like you were saying. She's doing that weird shaking. But then like you also raise a really good point too, Mansfield, like she might even be a reverse log lady, although she doesn't say anything like she offers no cryptic advice or anything she just sits there and that's shakes. why i kind of think she is because clearly like the log lady is somehow able to kind of tap into like the things that are going on beneath the surface and she does come up later in this movie well in the books they say like her husband who died in the fire like a forest fire or something uh near twin peaks his spirit is in her log now basically yeah yeah that's why she carries it around kind of wonder if the woodsmen from the black lodge are also maybe some of those spirits or somehow manifestations of them from that forest fire and that her husband through the power of love as dumb as that sounds like was able to remain good quote unquote and went into the log and like stayed with her for the rest of her life so she was always tapped in through him and whereas the others became like evil spirits of the black lodge that killed people and shit like we see in the return I don't know I'm, I'm, we're going like all over the place yeah. we knew this episode was gonna go there yeah well I think just what you're saying about the curious one being like the log lady because the log lady also experienced the abduction that Carl Rod experienced, I feel yeah. like she's more on par with his character than Same. the curious I took woman. Carl Rod as more of the log lady. He's mm-hmm. like one of the only genuinely good people in this town, like these yeah. people interact with. I guess his inverse is that he's not nearly as cryptic. He's very straightforward and to the point, whereas the log lady is much more metaphorical the way she speaks. Yeah, but we can move on from this. I was just wondering, yeah. that was such an interesting like little scene. We are like fucking 10 minutes in. Uh. <laughs> so yeah, anyway, so they decide like, okay, cool. Sam Stanley, you go back to Portland with 
Teresa Banks' body. Do a full examination there with all your tools. I'm going to go look around a little bit more. So Chester Desmond goes back to the trailer park. And he wants to look at the trailer again. Because he kind of has a hunch. He gets kind of sidetracked. There's another one of those moments where you hear the electricity. And he kind of has this moment where he then like turns and looks like, no, I'm going to go look at this trailer and as he's walking you know he asks Harry Dean Stan like who does this trailer belong to oh it belonged to these uh these people called the Chalfonts there were actually two generations of Chalfonts that lived here okay cool and then Desmond goes up to kind of look at it and notices there's like a little pile of dirt which we have seen in the show before with the ring sitting on the very top of the pile and as he kind of bends over to examine the ring and take it the scene basically freezes and fades to black and we we are to assume that Desmond has been transported off this plane of existence, <laughs> never to be fucking seen again. He Goodbye. is gone. He is gone from Twin Peaks, period. Like the franchise, yeah. even in the return, <laughs> they reference his disappearance in their turn and they reference it in the books. But beyond that, he is gone because basically in the books, she just concludes that like, oh, he disappeared. And we can't find him anywhere. The yep. end. Like, Yep. So then we jump back to the FBI headquarters in Philadelphia. Philadelphia. Oh right? God! This which I love that see. it's like literally just a shot of the fucking Liberty Bell with Philadelphia on it. Like where else could it fucking be? Like yes, show me a picture of you know the fucking White House, Washington D.C. Anyway, we then see Cole along with Albert Rosenfeld, played by Miguel Ferrer, who's fucking great in the original show. That's like one of my favorite. R.I.P. Yeah, R.I.P. Unfortunately, um, one of my favorite monologues from the entire show is oh, given yeah. by Albert. And then we see Agent Dale Cooper, played by Kyle McLaughlin from the original show. They are all hanging out at headquarters when Dale basically gets this weird, like, hey, Cole, that dream I had... This is what was happening. Like, this is the day that the dream was supposed to take place. This is the weird shit that I dreamed about. And we kind of see this weird business where he's going in and out of a hallway and looking up at the security camera in the hallway and dipping into the control room to look at the monitors back and forth. And Again, in all this, we realize right? electricity, exactly. And in all of this, we realize there is a weird goofiness to the feed because then we see a guy get off the elevator and walk down the hallway past him. Yeah. He sees himself still in the hallway and he's in the control room now. And yeah, like you said, uh, this fucking goofy guy who's David Bowie. um, Fucking David Bowie in like a wild tan suit and like Hawaiian shirt with like bright red fucking shoes. That's some like Wizard of Oz shit if I've ever seen it, by the way. Yeah. But he is another agent named Philip Jeffries who has been off investigating dot dot dot. Oh boy, this next scene's gonna be a doozy to explain. <laughs> Again, to go back to what I mentioned, I love that all the Blue Rose agents are musicians somehow or another. Yeah. Miguel Ferrer was a drummer for the longest time. Um, obviously, David Bowie, even Krista Bell that plays Tammy Preston in the new season. She's a musician as well. But anyway... He wanders in and is definitely like in a state and he is twitchy and they're asking him like, what's going on? Where have you been? You know, whatever. The scene becomes an acid trip, basically. Yeah. So as Philip Jeffries starts to recall what he's been doing, which immediately he starts with, now we're not going to talk about Judy. We're not going to discuss Judy at all. And immediately everybody's like, who the fuck is Judy? And And they're like, we don't care. Guess what? You're not going to (laughs) find out anything about Judy. Um, Judy is not going to come up at all in this movie. You're correct. alert judy might be kind of the twin peaks satan 
Yeah. Or Josie Packard's sister. Did you hear that? That's some, yes, some wild shit, bro. But probably Satan. I don't know. <laughs> but yeah. It's all super important to the return. And it was stuff that was originally going to be fleshed out in the, like, other two movies that they were kind of planning on, but obviously that didn't happen. So Jeffries, after mentioning Judy, which goes nowhere, he recalls having a meeting that he, like, was audience to, involving all of these different spirits. And this is where, again, you're not sure what the fuck you're looking at. It is all these different manifestations. They are all hanging out in this weird, dark place, which we all know from the show is the apartment of Above the convenience store. But none of this is expanded upon until the return in 2016, 2017. Yeah. A good chunk of at least all the esoteric spirit stuff in the return is all linchpinned from this one fucking scene with Philip Jeffries, yep. which is only like, what, three minutes long? Well, apparently it was like 20 minutes long. <laughs> they cut it down to like two. But anyway, yeah, we see this group of characters. Uh, mind you, the audio is bonkers. As he's saying all this, you start seeing like images of this meeting and it not making a fucking lick of sense and the audio starts getting really toned down and like overtaken by static and other noises. Yeah, the static is kind of overriding Jeffrey speaking, but you can still faintly make out what he's saying as you're seeing these characters. And one of the things, I don't know if y'all caught this, because after he says like, we're not going to talk about Judy, when Cooper like rushes in wanting to catch him and before he reaches uh, the office, as he's rushing in, Philip Jeffries like stops and like looks at him terrified and he's just like, do you think this is Cooper or what What does he say exactly? Are you sure you know who this man is? Yeah. And like, if we're going to go with the nature of time throughout Twin Peaks, which is That's a real early seed to plant as far as where like the return ends up going. I always get goosebumps at that scene watching the return of because time is like so fucked with in the return. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like maybe he's run into him already at the Black Lodge. In the future even. Yeah. yeah. Or like, he's and he seen knows- his doppelganger in the Black Black Lodge, you know? Well, knowing how season two ends as well, we know Coop ends up Uh possessed at the end of season two. So just knowing that, yeah, it's totally one of those things where, like, they put that in there to set it up for these other movies they were planning to make, and then, of course, that didn't happen. But yeah, we see in this weird meeting in this place, this, like, dark apartment, there's the man from another place, the little actor who's wearing the red suit and dancing talking backwards that we, you know you've seen from pop culture a million times also mike's arm <laughs> he's also yes, he's also <laughs> literally, arm. literally the arm of mike another spirit there is bob who is like the main evil entity from the original show there is miss tremond slash chalfont so there's like a weird kind of double identity with this character who was in the original show and is in this movie and her grandson who we also see in the original show as well but then there's some new characters so there is the woodsman, um, one of whom is Jurgen Prochnow, who worked with Lynch previously on fucking Dune, uh, and he was a huge <laughs> Twin Peaks fan, so he was like, sure, yeah, I'll put on a fake beard and come be in this weird shit. <laughs> to me, the woodsmen are, are just, they're the same from The Return. Yeah, it's just more evil spirits, yeah. Yeah, and then the electrician as well, and Bob, who plays Bob again? Frank Silva? Frank yeah, Silva. Frank Silva. Yeah, Frank Silva. Who, like, such an interesting, like, background on Frank Silva, because he was... He was a grip. And he got caught in that one shot. It was actually a, originally a fuck-up, but then David Lynch liked his yeah, look exactly. so much. He's just like, no, you're killer Bob now. <laughs> 
<laughs> You're my fucking, like, son of Satan, if we're gonna say Judy Satan. Yeah. The other character that's new for this movie, which is honestly the most fucking terrifying one to me, is the jumping man. The jumping man is really scary. Yeah. Just the creepiest shit. It's this little, kind of short, slightly pudgy guy, clearly an African-American actor, based on, like, his hair and the rest of his skin, but his face has on this caked-on, white, almost Pagliacci makeup with, like, a pointy nose and teeth and everything, and he's wearing a red suit, and he's just grimacing and, like, jumping around, and it's a fucking terrifying nightmare image. But we see this whole group, and they are having this conversation that essentially boils down to a few of these characters want their, like, life force essence. They are hungry. They are in need of it. Um, and they describe it as Garmin Bosia, pain and sorrow, which we fucking know from season two of the show. Garmin Bosia. <laughs> there is a weird fucking cream corn thing. And that is one of like the goofy shit things from the show that like everybody seems to remember. I think uh, on an F this movie, my seven word review for Fire Walk With Me was Garmin Bosia is just the Twin Peaks midichlorians. Basically, <laughs> yeah. So we kind of learn from these spirits that essentially like they are hungry. They are ready to like come into our world, cause strife and sorrow and harm so that they can like feed off of that negative energy. And so Philip Jeffries essentially like shows back up because he's been investigating all these other weird nexus areas around the fucking world trying to figure out what are these spirits? Where is this crossover? Like we found out he was in Argentina exploring all this weird shit. And so he has come back to headquarters to essentially warn them that something's about to happen. Didn't like he disappear for like two years and no one heard from him at all. Yeah. Yeah. And then he shows back up here to give them a fucking warning of like, hey, shit's about to go Something's about to happen. They all trip all balls. Meeting. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, he seems to fucking disappear into thin fucking air. Again, all this electricity buzzing and the lights are kind of buzzing and all this other stuff is happening. There's like all these neon fluorescent lights in the office that are starting to go haywire. And then all of a sudden, he's just gone. Like the chair that he was <laughs> in is empty and Cole is just screaming like, he's gone, he's gone, he's disappeared. It's like they all had like a collective vision in the Hallucination, middle. Hallucination, Like middle of like a working day in Philadelphia. <laughs> yeah. This fucking rando guy just runs into an office building, shouts about, like, spirits, and this is kind of, like, one of those things where I do really like the idea of spirits in the world of Twin Peaks, of just being so unknowable and ridiculous that yeah. a human trying to peer into, like, what they're doing, it just looks like this room above a convenience store with a little man, this silvered-haired demon-looking guy, and this jumping An man. old lady, And yeah. a fucking monkey in the background, like, just yeah. none of this makes sense. Like they're all saying random shit like the fury of my momentum and and like with this ring I wed thee and like yeah it's it's a craziness. But yeah he disappears. Albert even like phones downstairs to the front desk and of course nobody came through the front desk nobody's come in the building right so they, they're kind of left with this weird like what the fuck is going on so at that point Dale Cooper is basically assigned 
to go follow up on the disappearance of Desmond. And so he also goes to Deer Meadow. One last thing before we leave the scene. Since we have been kind of digging in, going going to asides, what the fuck just happened? Yeah. <laughs> Does it literally boil down to Jeffrey's like warning the world? What else is going on with like the jumping man and the electrician? And again, going back to Judy, I know we were not going to talk about Judy, but like, let's talk a little bit about Judy right here. I think they're just other spirits. I think it's like the key spirits we know and then just some other spirits that happen to be in the area. And I think Jeffries, like we see characters in the show, accidentally or purposely wander into these nexus areas like the Grove where they like slip in between kind of these dimensional areas and enter the Black Lodge. He essentially did that in Argentina, but we know time is fucky. So chances are that's why he's been gone for two years. And really it could have only been two minutes for him, you know, where he like sees this meeting take place, but it turns out he's been gone for two whole years and having again that time missing kind of element. But I feel like he shows back up. He tells them what he needs to like. He manages to like cross back into our world just long enough to tell them and is either pulled back out by the demons. Like they essentially like know what's going on and pull him back out or he just can't hold himself together. You know, he's like using the electricity in the building to like manifest himself, but he's not powerful enough. He doesn't know how to control it and just poof gone. You know, yeah. that's at least my reading on it. What about you, Meryl? Yeah, I think that's a really good reading on it. I think that Jeffries has been getting deeper and deeper into contact with these spirits and maybe slipping in and out of their world. So like you're saying, like as a human, you might not really know how to control that or be able to at a certain point. Yeah. And if we go into like the missing pieces part of this section, I, I think this was one of the parts I loved the most about the missing pieces was we get to see him in that hotel in Buenos Aires checking in yeah. and then see him get transported back there, yeah. which we don't see that in, in the movie, but yeah. in The Missing Pieces, you see that he gets transported back onto a random staircase, and he's, like, yeah. burned from electricity, and he leaves a black mark on the wall. Yeah, doesn't he do it in front of a cleaning lady? Yes, in front of a cleaning <laughs> yeah. lady and an, a guy, which, did I hear this right? The guy is, like, saying something's coming out of his butt. I get the impression that he shit himself. I okay. think that's what happened. Okay. Yeah. I couldn't really understand <laughs> that, part. but I loved that that was included in The Missing Pieces, because that was such a fun piece of, oh my god, more David Bowie <laughs> and also yeah. like he's in Argentina yeah. we never got to see that so one thing like I want to challenge a little bit is that we keep calling these spirits demons or like attributing some sort of morality to them true yeah it's kind of a force of habit unfortunately but yeah. you're right they are just these unknowable spirits where there is no like moral compass per se yeah I think we have a lot of themes in Twin Peaks generally of we, I think we're probably going to get into this further later on but humans specifically Laura seeing the world in black and white yeah there's like a dichotomy and therefore it is very difficult for humans to wrap their brains around these entities that maybe are neither black or white like they're not good or evil they are just entities and something that i'd like to get into more but i've been thinking about a lot lately is that we can sort of map the idea of these spirits to maybe like an idea of like what the greek gods were like you know, it's like sure, these yeah. these entities that like have their own whims, they're good or bad based on like our relationship with them. Like, are they good to humans or not? Then I decide if they're good or bad, you know, but like some yeah. of them like want to help humans like Mrs. Tremont, Chalfont is in there and she's clearly not 
trying to do harm to Lara. She's maybe like neutral, but also maybe trying to help in whatever weird way she can later on in the story. And then you've got some of the spirits like Mike, who is like, I used to be bad to humans. Now I'm trying to be better. Yeah. But then you've also got the currency of Garmin Boja or whatever that they're actively trying to mine, I guess, is a good way of thinking about it. Like from experiences that they have with humans, like pain and suffering and torture are ways that they get that Garmin Boja. And that's the conversation that we come into is the lines that they say are like, Garmin Bozia, this is the formica table, green is the color, fell a victim with this ring I thee wed, which is essentially nonsense. And I think that's what it's supposed to sound like to us, because if we were walking into a meeting of the gods, why would we understand what they're saying? So it's English, but it's nonsense to us. It's meaningful to them because it's not really on our plane of understanding. Same with their behavior, like the jumping man in the background. Like to us, that means complete nonsense, like nightmare logic. But to the spirits, he's probably serving some kind of purpose or like doing something. Or entertaining them. And then the last two things that I think are just interesting interesting uh, asides to all this is parts from the secret diary that tie in one of them is just the fact that creamed corn is laura's favorite meal yep whoa really i didn't know that right <laughs> i know they make it for her birthday so that's something fun i didn't remember this the first time i read it but at some point I think she's like 13 at this point. She dreams of an address, 1400 River Road. So she wakes up in the morning. She's like, I just got to go there. And she rides her horse there. She has a horse as she's growing up, by the way. And this is the line that I underlined. I found myself in front of this very old abandoned gas station. And I was like, that's the convenience store. She got there. That's where it was. That's so crazy. And I want to come back to this section later on when we talk about it, because she has this awesome conversation with the log lady. That's really fun. But I love that that seed is in there, like from the secret diary up until the return when we get to actually like see these gas stations and explore them more is so fun that it's already there at the very beginning well and something interesting about these spirits general because they're all in my opinion black lodge spirits even the ones that are more benevolent to laura and then later on in the show to like coop and everyone else these are all black lodge spirits so they're all chaotic probably in in nature yeah all of them with degree of quote-unquote evilness like you were saying meryl for instance the the little man, the man from another place, the arm, he seems to be the true, true neutral spirit mm-hmm. through all of Twin Peaks. Because yeah. even yep. like even though he doesn't seem to care for Bob, he still wants his cut of Garmin, whatever the fuck it's called. <laughs> but then at the same time, he later on, he's helping Cooper by offering like cryptic you know, messages. And then he also brings in doppelgangers mm-hmm. like in the last episode of season two. Yeah. So he seems like a true, true neutral chaos. Yeah. Whereas Bob is pure evil and Judy probably is also pure evil. And then Chalfant is more of good natured, but these are all chaotic. The black and white lodges, I don't necessarily take as evil and good. It's more like chaos and order to me. I think that's a great way of thinking about it. It's actually more chaos and peace. Like the white lodge is more peace and the black lodge is just more chaos. Just like forces of energy that sprung from some event event at some point yeah i think the idea of detonating the the nuclear bomb during the nuclear test unbalanced the scales and basically blasted open like whereas the black lodge was just kind of like creaked open like where people who knew about it could like go on the edges of it of interacting with these spirits the fucking nuke test just blasts open the door judy mm-hmm. comes out judy regurgitates all this darkness including bob that's why like they now have to wreck control of forces in our reality that's why bob can basically get around with being a serial
serial killer. Yeah. He has to take over people to do it, but he still is like actively killing and raping like in our plane of existence. Right. Yeah. Oh, I love that reading. That's such a good. That's my two cents it. of it. Whereas the White Lodge is still very much like kind of the door is still kind of slightly closed, uh, which kind of goes all in all into like uh, Major Briggs being like, I don't know if love is enough speech in the original show and this and that. But uh, yeah, so this Jeffrey scene is a very pivotal part of all a of Twin Peaks history. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, totally. So we close out this first segment of the movie by seeing Agent Cooper go to Deer Meadow to further investigate Desmond's disappearance. Um, we have a moment where he's talking to Diane on the recorder, but essentially he is following up the lead. So he goes to the first place. The first place he goes to rather is the place where Desmond disappeared. So it's the Fat Trout trailer park. And he goes, he talks to the manager again. And as they're walking to the place where Desmond disappeared, the trailer that was there is no longer there. It's gone. Like it's just poof, gone with, you know, no real answers. Rod says like he thinks maybe they packed up in the middle of the night and left because he doesn't even remember them leaving. So we could probably assume it just got sucked into like the pole. Yeah. Yeah. Space and time vortex of the Black Lodge. Yep. So he then turns around and sees a car and asks Rod, like, hey, is that Agent Desmond's car? And says, oh, yeah, yeah. He left it here after he just disappeared. Cooper walks close to the car and we see written in what looks like bright red pink lipstick let's rock let's rock mind you is uh one of the quotes from the show that the man from another place says to cooper in like the first episode i think actually let's rock yeah and cooper basically surmises that the killer is out there and will strike again even if Teresa banks's murder has kind of led to a dead end and we are gonna put a pin in it right here this is the first time in our show's history we're gonna be doing a, a multi-parter this is yeah. Because this is just too much. Like, we want to, di- we, we've decided while we're recording, like, we want to dive into all of the outside extra lore of Twin Peaks as we're going through the this movie. And just this, this would be way too much to try and all fit into one episode. Yeah. And if I'm being real, this is definitely like a one for us episode where we're all just going to kind of sit around and gush about something that we like. So, you know, I don't expect this to be the, our most popular episode, but the people that are into Twin Peaks will make up the difference. So, <laughs> yeah. either way. I've had a great time talking with y'all so far. I'm excited to like pick up this conversation in another couple days. But yeah, we're going to stop here and we are going to pick back up with a following episode that will come out in the near future. And and just kind of as a heads up where we're going to begin in part two of Firewalk with me is we're going to go one year later and into Twin Peaks and finally meet Laura Palmer herself. I'm glad we've gotten through the first 10 minutes of this movie, (laughs) y'all. I knew like I I kind of had a feeling we might I have know. to break this up because like <laughs> yeah. Twin Peaks is just it's a can of worms but uh, Meryl will be back to join us for our second part we might even do another reading oh man let's do it we are going to probably wait a couple days at least before we record part two. Thank you once again, Meryl, for doing this with us. We love having you on. Thank you so much. I've been preparing for this for my whole life, I think. Yeah, yeah. I've been excited. Like, ever since you and I talked about it that night, I've been like, oh, we got to do the episode with Meryl eventually. <laughs> and I, I'm very happy that we are making this our first two-parter because we've had movies like The Thing and things like that where we we're just like, oh, man, that's pretty hefty. I don't know. Should we do that a two-part? It's very much in the style of our show and like the taste that Aaron and I share that our first two parter is going to be a Twin Peaks. Yeah. Even if this is technically supposed to be only covering Firewalk with me, we're basically covering all Twin Peaks. Like, 
I'm so happy to be here for it. You don't even know. (laughs) So with all that said, we will be back uh, in the next episode for part two of Firewalk with me. We are once again, Watch If You Dare, the horror movie podcast uh, hosted by The Coward, myself, and the uh, monster movie boy, Aaron. You can find us at all the shit, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, CastBox, Podchaser. All that stuff is on our Podbean, like all the show links. You can find all of it there. Yeah, I think we've gotten to the point now where we just need to be like, wherever you get your podcast. Yeah, wherever you get your podcast. Please continue to rate and review us, especially on Apple Podcasts and Podchaser, actually. Uh, We've gotten a couple reviews on there, too, so thank you. And we are on Facebook and Twitter at Watch If You Dare. Once again, thank you to your little brother, Jesse Mansfield, for our introduction and outro music. Yep. can find all his stuff at Party Gator and Bandcamp and all that. And on that note, too, I know lots of us are, like, having rough times right now with everything that's going on. Um, My brother is definitely one of the people that's having it rough. He got sent home from his job, no pay, nothing. They were just like, cool, we're shutting everything down, bye. So he's definitely, like, trying to figure out what to do to pay bills, make ends meet. So if y'all could, please get on his band camp, get some music, throw him a couple of bucks, um, and definitely give him a little bit of support during this time. We would greatly appreciate it. And I know he would, and his girlfriend would as well, too. So yeah, big thanks for that. And definitely support him if you can. All right, cool, cool. Well, um, I think that's going to be it for part one of Twin Peaks Firewalk with me. Through the darkness of futures past, the magician longs to see a Sally chance out between two worlds, fire, walk with me.